my fellow Westorians. We are back. I'm so thankful to be here with you all and with my great friends, Sean and Aziz. <laughs> Sean and Aziz? I meant to say Sean and Azea. I'm happy to be here with myself, too, because if I wasn't here, that would be weird. Well, An empty chair. With- Boy, I guess I need a few more sips of coffee. Maybe I'm not quite ready to start today. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you're your own friend. I'm a, I'm in the third person today. <laughs> or I am the third person. I'm happy to be here with Mr. Hat. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was not planned, everybody. <laughs> but hey, we're off. We're starting. This is going to be another fun episode. We've been doing a lot of historical comparisons. We've been bleeding a lot of real-world data and information spliced in with the uh, Song of Ice and Fire stuff. Today, there's going to be a little less of that. We don't have as much real-world information. The Century of Blood is just so packed full of stuff, and we're not going to get to cover it all today because it's so big. But we're going to cover the parts that are particularly relevant to Westeros the most, the stuff that happened west of Valyria, the stuff that happened, say, to the north and east, we'll cover separately when we get to those particular regions, when we cover them on their own. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And we do have a little bit of real world stuff today. If we have time, we've got a couple of volcano things to talk about. Not volcanoes that, like we talked about last time, but like eruptions, actual devastations and that because that's related to the doom. Related to other topics, though. Sean, how you doing today and what are you drinking? I have... A mix, it didn't quite have the synergy I wanted. This is the another new Red Bull flavor, Peach Nectarine Red Bull, with Peach Nectarine Sparkling Ice, of course Mountain Dew. But I wanted to get a more of a, they have, you know, I usually have one of the protein naked drinks. There's a mango one. I thought it would be good Peach Nectarine, but they didn't have it, so I just oh. have the Green Machine one. So Yeah, it's, got, it's still good. I got to say, it's one of your grosser looking drinks. It is like a brown, yeah, olive sludge, kind of a color. Yeah. but It looks like yeah. wilted wildfire. It's yeah. like it had the the bright green of wildfire, but it's so old it got, yeah, (laughs) it got darker. The taste is more important than the look. I guess it is. I guess it is. That's true. That's true. Shout out to our friend of the show, Nina, goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's with one L and Allie. She is writing over on her blog. As usual, there's a cool post on the Accursed King, some A Song of Ice and Fire references pop up in there. There's probably no one. I I seriously don't know that there's a single person on this planet that knows more about the A Song of Ice and Fire connections to the Accursed King series than Nina does, with the possible exception of George himself. But only the possible exception of George (laughs) himself. It is not a sure thing. I love the Accursed Kings. It's a great series. I'm going to have to reread it one day. It's a huge influence on A Song of Ice and Fire, as I just said. And if you've read it, well, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, Ashea's survey that she introduced last time is still up. If you could check that out and fill it out. Ashea, you want to say a word about it real quick? Yeah, this is probably the last week I'll be plugging this. I got to wrap it up sooner or later. You can go to bit.ly slash AR lens. That's bit.ly slash AR lens. It'll take you about under 10 minutes. I timed disease and it was seven and a half minutes. It'll be quick. I really need people who are more frequent users of AR at this point. I need all folks. But if you happen to know anyone who uses augmented reality lenses a lot, I sure would appreciate it if you shared the survey with them because I really need more people who use it at least every week. Thanks. Right on. You know, I took it, Shay, and I don't use it much. In fact, as I took the survey, a lot of questions was like quick and easy for me. 
But it's still sometimes it was thought-provoking. You know, even if I knew the answer for myself quick and easy, I took a minute to stop and think about the people that would answer this differently and why. It was a, it was an intriguing survey. I think it's, I hope more people take it for you. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. That is the point. I am going to be writing a long paper on it. So I would hope there's some interesting, yeah. thought-provoking stuff in there. And Sean is not the only person to actually say positive things about the survey itself, just about the questions about how well it was made. So... Yeah, I mean, it's weird to pitch a survey like that, but hey, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it took me more than 10 minutes just because it stirred me a little bit. Yeah, it just makes you think about your own habits. Sometimes that's interesting and it takes you down a rabbit hole of your other behaviors or other thoughts and you're like, wait. Or other people's behaviors or thoughts. Yeah, Yeah. it's thought-provoking for sure. I appreciate it, actually. Slight spoilers. In the the boys' spinoff, the diabolical animated spinoff they did, they had a whole episode about augmented reality lenses Hmm. and its impact on Hmm. people. No spoilers. But I was like, oh, hey, cool. And that one was written by uh, Alana Glazer for Broad City. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah. Well, I covered the boys, the regular TV series I have on my YouTube channel, but I haven't even watched the diabolic animated shorts yet. I really should do that. Especially fun. Alana Glazer wrote one of them. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, she's great. She's just doing all sorts of stuff, isn't she? All right, so let's get going. Thanks to everyone who's come out live. As usual, you can send questions before or during, and we'll do our best to answer them. If we can't answer them today, we'll put them on the shelf and answer them some other time. Our trivia question for today, this is a really hard one. As I was writing it, I was wondering, maybe I should do an easier one. It's possible that nobody knows the answer to this one. (laughs) If if you're asking a trivia question and you're like, does anyone know the answer to this? You might be asking a question that's too hard. But I'm going to go forward with it anyway. Y'all will at least be curious what the answer is, even if no one knows it. What two other names did George R. Martin originally use before officially calling it the Century of Blood? And what I mean by that is before he had published anything with the phrase Century of Blood in it, he had used other terms for it. He had re- given alternate names for it just in la- like conventions and readings, particularly in the Aegon's Conquest readings that he did before The World of Ice and Fire was published. Was it 100 Years of Plasm? Is that what it was? <laughs> no? No, afraid not. <laughs> but I will give a 99 quote. Years of Plasm. Uh, 100 Years of Platelets. <laughs> <laughs> I will give a clue, though. Both phrases contain the word years. So two phrases like Century of Blood, both containing the word years. Answer at the end. I was closer than I realized. (laughs) That's what reminded me to give that (laughs) clue, actually. We're done with Valyria itself for now. And so is the world at the point in time at which we are involved today. Only in a direct sense, though, of course, as we've pointed out indirectly, the world remains quite heavily Valyrian influenced, even though the doom destroyed so much of the actual Valyrian peninsula and people and all that. The grip of Valyria was such that its fall caused a wave of violence equal to or greater than anything the brutal freehold unleashed on any of its enemies intentionally. In Slaver's Bay, we see Danny wrestle with the problems of removing slavery. Yet how little room there is for compromise, yet how at the same time that policy causes harm to innocents. Some of her advisors like Dario and the Shea Pate warned her to simply wipe out the prior power structure. This is something like that, but on a much larger scale and in recurring waves. It's as if she took their advice. Yeah, let's just kill all the slavers. That's the, you know, and all their families and all their buildings. And yeah, it is on a much larger scale. But when we're looking for comparisons, it's a pretty good one. And well, it's also hard to find comparisons. There's really nothing quite like the Doom, is there, Sean? (laughs) No, yeah, like you, you can find comparisons, I guess, but they're, 
there's as much contrast as comparison. But for example, after the Civil War in the United States, it's not like the next hundred years was peaceful and fair, right? Yeah, you're right. In 1964, there were riots in the streets, you know, like it was better, but it wasn't good. It didn't magically get better. There was still like a power vacuum in the South and there was still turmoil. Even people on the winning side didn't totally accept all the terms and it's, it's clear that, you know, the, the types of troubles that can come from an upheaval, even when there is some sort of uh, control around it, where this was completely chaotic and unpredictable. So. Yeah, yeah I, I feel like out of all the terms that, you know, like if you want to find comparisons to the century of blood, there might be different things that you're comparing. And one of them is power vacuum mm. is one of the most major ones. And yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Good point, Shay. Power vacuum is the operative phrase here, I suppose. It's a bigger version than anyone we can think of in any real world scenario that I know of. <laughs> There's really nothing. There's, like you said, Sean, there's things we can compare. There's contrast that would come up just big. So we're really looking for partial comparisons, but there's also in world comparisons that we, as we have here. And it, it's the same kind of upheaval that Danny causes at the lower levels too. Not intending this, but of course, you're up, uprooting a society, trying to make cause great change. Of course, that's going to have ripple effects. And I don't see how it could be otherwise. I don't see how you destroy slavery or any powerful institution without harming some innocents. And this is like a thousand times over, right? In the, in the case of the doom, it's not just Slaver's Bay. It's this, you know, massive scale. In the long term, it's better that this great enslaving empire is gone. I mean, how can you argue against that? But it is difficult and confusing at best to think about that short term and how a lot of people have to suffer, people who had nothing to do with it, people who weren't even connected to it, people who had, maybe people who didn't even own slaves or had basically no evil at all. They're just part of a big system that they're not participating in, but they have no control over. A lot of these, a lot of these people were deeply impacted by this. A lot of the middle class were shredded. That's part of why it's difficult and confusing because you're just like, yeah, this is good, even as you're watching and acknowledging that a lot of innocent people will suffer because of it. Like a lot of slave labor through history, I assume in Martin's world too, would have been responsible for the processing and distribution of food, yeah. right? And if there weren't slaves, people would have had farms. They would have, food would have happened anyway, but you know, certain people get to have more control over it, get to make more profit over it or whatever. But if suddenly all the slaves or slave owners, or whatever are gone, the processing and distribution of food gets disrupted. So people who were buying food a thousand miles away, they didn't have any slaves, still suddenly might not have any food to buy. It might yeah. face famine and whatnot. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Or, or at and, least they're missing some goods that they normally have. Maybe it's not, yeah. maybe it doesn't cause them to starve, but it's something that they were like, wow, this is going to be difficult to not have anymore, or we need to find another source. Issues in the supply chain. Supply uh, chain. Okay. That's right. Yes, exactly. That's something we're doing. And if there was here. some way to end slavery slowly, right? If there's some way to you know, it, maybe you could justify it's worth having it last for another generation to keep famine from spreading from the sudden disruption of it. Maybe that would be better. You know, it might be a tricky thing to argue, but there was no option here, right? Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> when the doom happens, there's no other, no other compromise or planned way for it to happen any other way. When it happens real suddenly, like people want Danny to do, or whether it happens slowly, there's going to be troubles, you know? Yeah, that makes us all very interesting. It all circles back to this topic is so heavily layered. It's super interesting to me because the state we find Slaver's Bay, to continue to use that as an example, the place Danny is engaged with all of this, it was the possession of Valyria for thousands of years. The doom is what set them free. And of course, they use that freedom to immediately go about taking the freedom of others. 
quote, free. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so as they had been doing before and during the rule of the freehold. So they just basically were like, yeah, well, they were, we were slaves of them. Now we're going to make the people below us slaves. It's just trickle-down effect. This is how the world is. Except she's not actually in Slaver's Bay right now, is she? Technically, no. We expect her to return. But as of the recording of this episode, she's amongst the Dothraki, who also emerge in this time period. <laughs> the doom enabled the horse lords, too. That's right. So that's pretty wild to think about how that's a big part of all this, too. And we do know Danny will be dealing with Volantis one way or another, too. And she has dragons because her family was the only dragon-riding family to escape the doom. So it's funny how when the horse lords emerge, there's a bunch of people that are probably like, wait, maybe we liked having Valyria around after all. <laughs> but but not nearly all. For most, for not, but maybe not most, but for a lot of people, it was the best thing that ever happened. All these elements in the book, especially to the east and west of Valyria, where they were, have huge ties to what's happening now. The disputed lands is a big topic today. Volantis, as I just said, that they were the major inheritor of Valyria's power, at least they tried to be. And Slaver's Bay, of course, same deal. And the Dithraki, just all of this relates to the Century of Blood. These are all the legacies of that period. And that's why, as I said at the beginning, we couldn't possibly cover all of it, but we'll keep ourselves focused in a certain set of regions and cover everything we can. So the Doom was just over 400 years ago and the Century of Blood came right after. Interestingly, the end of the Century of Blood coincides with Aegon's conquest. Right about the time the Century of Blood is considered to end, Aegon's like, all right, let's go, conquer Westeros. Part of that is he was involved in the Century of Blood. And that also means that in terms of our Valar Reedus for the World of Ice and Fire, this is the farthest forward in the timeline we've been. Of course, we're going to be jumping back when we get to Westeros. We haven't even covered the Andals yet, for example. So we're really far ahead of that in terms of time, but we're you know sticking with Valyria until its end. And that's this is where we land. Of course, the numbers are uncertain, but the full run of the Valyrian Freehold was at least 5,000 years but if the Long Night was 8,000 years ago and we're told the Valyrians emerged out of it or just after it, then we're really talking more like 7,500 or 7,000 years since the Doom was only 400 years ago. So that's, you know, 400 minus 8,000, you know, roughly that, you know, give or take a few hundred or 500. I was told there would be no math. <laughs> <laughs> We've got an episode on the Doom already, so that's why we're not going to get into the descriptions of the actual event a whole lot. It, it was a shorter episode for us, only about 40 minutes. We only, we only spent eight or 10 minutes on the actual Century of Blood. So obviously we've got plenty more to go there. And there weren't any real world or fictional inspirational comparisons in that, which we also have planned, if not today, at some other point. It does contain parts on what Valyria is like now and all the meta on how George gradually revealed what the Doom even was. I think some of y'all don't, don't recognize that. At first, the Doom was just a thing. He just called it that and no one had any idea what that even meant. <laughs> it was like, what's the doom? What happened? What was the doom of Valyria? What happened? We didn't know it had anything to do with volcanoes. We didn't know it was fiery devastation. Not at all. It was just some grand cataclysm that George maybe hadn't fleshed out fully. And then, you know, but eventually he did. So this quote to start off today really tells us what we're getting after. The proudest city in all the world was gone in an instant. The fabled empire vanished in a day. The lands of the long summer, once the most fertile in all the world, were scorched and drowned and blighted, and the toll in blood would not be fully realized for a century to come. Yeah, there it is. Blood, century. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the phrase century of blood isn't directly used, but the terms appear <laughs> in there anyway. 
it does help confirm too what we were saying about Valerians being more populous than maybe it was perceived. Though maybe a lot of that fertility was spent feeding all those dragons, which we acknowledged would have mm-hmm. been pretty substantial. <laughs> all they they weren't eating all those lambs themselves; they were feeding them to the dragons. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, as we talked about at the beginning, power vacuum. Now the bigger the vanishing power structure, the bigger the power vacuum. And Valyria was just immensely powerful. But it's not just power, right? It isn't only power. That is the big, important thing people are fighting over because that's the thing that has the most collateral damage, the thing that takes the most attention, the thing that causes the most blood and death. But it's not just that. Let's get into some examples and what I mean by that. Now, a smaller example of a power vacuum, maybe something we're more familiar with in Westeros would be a king or a lord dying without heirs. And then the cousins and the distant family members and the bastards all fight over whatever it is that's there. Nina think, says, it's crazy to think about the complete absence of Valyria from the world map, not only because of how long Valyria stayed in power, but also because there was no great power in Valyria's area before Valyria. The Giscari Empire existed, obviously, but it doesn't seem like Gis conquered nearly as far west as Valyria ever went. Valyria wasn't just the greatest power in the world. It was, in a sense, it was the only world power that had ever truly existed, at least in this corner of the world, you know, with respect to parts of the globe we've never seen. But the free cities that are emerging from the collapse of the freehold are trying to build power in a structure which had only ever belonged to Valyria. This is a big part of the free cities becoming free is that they had never existed without Valyria, with the possible exception of Lorath. And maybe maybe there were proto versions of some of these cities, but they had existed in this state for so long. It's basically the same point. Can you imagine, Sean, like Italy sinking into the sea? That's an imaginary parallel. But even then, only if we're talking the Roman Empire, because if Italy sunk into the sea now, it would be a huge tragedy. But it wouldn't cause the power vacuum that, say, it would if it had happened during Rome's height when Rome ruled the Mediterranean. Right. One positive thing of modern of the modern world is that we're all a little bit more interconnected with each other. That today, even in a quote unquote remote island, if it were totally destroyed, there would still be people on that island connected to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. But if you go back a thousand years ago or in the time of Westeros, if some remote island got destroyed, no one even notices. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of a sad thing to think. Now, obviously, people would have noticed if Italy went away, but in certain ways, it would be more the interconnection of the world now would make it more of a tragedy because the relationships that people have with the people in Italy are more known. But like you said, it wouldn't be a power vacuum. If Washington, D.C., if some cataclysmic event happened and Washington, D.C. just like sank into the earth or blew up or something, I mean, it would be terribly tragic and, and generate a lot of chaos. But the American embassy in France would still be there. Yeah. You know what I mean? The governor of California wouldn't have lost control of the state. You know, there would still be other sort of power systems and interconnections in place that wouldn't create the same sort of power vacuum that would have happened when Valeria went away or if, you know, Rome had sunk. Yeah, modern power structures, even though we a lot of times talk about how the government has too much power and, you know, that's a valid discussion to have, but there isn't a government that exists right now that had the level of power Valeria had, you know, relatively speaking. There are certainly places that are locked down. North Korea is obviously, they have incredible levels of control over their people and information. But even if the entire Kim family vanished from North Korea overnight, it wouldn't create this kind of power vacuum. It would, it would be very internalized too. It wouldn't have ripple effects outside of North Korea nearly as much. Right. Yeah. Well, another good example from 
ancient times would be the Athenian Maritime Empire, more recently the British Maritime Empire. Imagine England just sinking into the sea at the height of their powers. That just, that would be something similar. I can't say anything more for spoilers, but for anyone who is niche to the Expanse, you can think about that as well. It's funny, I, I have a note about that. the Expanse right here, right after. Yeah, that. you do. That's what made me think of it a little bit. But this is just this generally the idea of power vacuums and chain of command is something to r- ruminate on, having finished the final novella. At the high point, that what Ashe is saying is, applies. I also want to point to the low point. If you're familiar with the Expanse, Amos refers to the churn, which is when the little people at the bottom, the like day-to-day folk, have to deal with the huge changes above and just find a way to survive until it settles down again. Because the, the trickle down, the blood coming down, the power, the crushing, the, the uncaring cynicism of the above system that crushes all the little people, calling it the churn is... Yeah, you don't have to have read The Expanse to get that concept. It really it really applies here. It's connected to something that was happening in the, a discussion in the chat last time mm. that I, you made me think of it when you said, uh, you know, if England had sunk to the sea. Similar to what I was saying about if DC sunk to the sea right now, there would still be like these power structures in place around that would remain some amount of order despite the chaos that would ensue. England still have like a governor in India and Jamaica and so on, right? It would be hugely disruptive and those satellite powers might lose some of their authority or resources. Targaryens were, of course, already moved to Dragonstone by then. They left 12 years before the Doom. So they were just out of... Because they were called to a prophet meeting, which was saying that Danny the Dreamer said, get out of there. But there were some... There were like Archons and a few Dragon Lords that were in various places that weren't in the Doom. They were all killed. Most people took the opportunity to like, we hate you. Your power structure collapsed. We're going to kill you now. That was what it was. There was basically a mass uprising against most of the Valyrian governorship that remained. They're like, look, the power of the freeholds no longer behind you. No one can save you. We hate how you've ruled us all this time. Slash, we're going to take this now. There's a combination of both. There's like a cynicism of we hate you because you the way you ruled us. Plus, ah, this is a great opportunity for us to seize this power. Various factions mm-hmm. within these different cities. Of course, it's different in different places. We're talking about dozens, if not hundreds of locations where this played out in, in different versions of this. But there are some examples. One one key example of a dragon lord who tried to put some things back together and some other just vague passages about a couple of dragon riders or dragon lords were in various places and they just, they were just murdered. Just people took the advantage. It's like the jail cells all opened at once in the prison and they're like, all right, we're going to go kill all the wardens now before they shut these doors. <laughs> it's kind of something like that. I guess... Going back to your example, if England, if the island of Britain had sunk into the sea, I can imagine there might have been revolutions in all their satellites yeah. around the world. Like maybe some of the places that the, the governors were decent. But if the governors were, you know, being super cynical, exploiting the population, yeah, you could really see how the locals would just rise up, take that chance and knock them off and be like, no, we're, we're this is our one chance to get out from under this yoke. Yeah. I think a lot about the, the 1984 concept that there's this sort of recurring system of you have this elite few people in charge and every now and then the middle class rallies the lower class to revolt against them. And then you you just fall back into this elite, the upper class with the middle class. Yeah. It's like this yeah. cycle that despite the revolutions, you still tend to go back to the same thing. I can imagine that sort of thing happening that some people, even in an area where the people didn't feel particularly repressed, still might have been rallied to war under the propaganda of a middle class who were seizing the opportunities. Yeah, very true, very true. There would have been a lot of confusion and people not knowing what's going to happen, who's going to seize power, what's going to be a lot. It'd be easier to 
easy enough to mislead people to, to control people through fear as to their anxiety as to what's going to happen and be like, let me, I'll be the strong voice to you lead can us imagine this, this leading chaos. to like you can imagine all that leading to a whole century of violence <laughs> a whole century <laughs> no that's too long we mentioned briefly last time atlantis and that's george himself cited that as an inspiration because of the way it ended now the legends of atlantis do say it is a good comparison it was an island kingdom of advanced knowledge it was supposedly beyond other places you know, of course, this is all very fictional, but the le- people do still believe in it, even though there's a complete lack of evidence. But getting setting that aside, whether it's real or not, it's an inspiration. It's belie- whether kind of like a lot of things, whether it's real or not, doesn't have as much to do with how people behave. If they think it's real, they act as if it's real. And that's more what we're interested in here. That does sound like the doom, though, like highly advanced civilization that dominated that just vanished all of a sudden. Yeah, that's that is probably as close as we can get, but again, legendary. And another way to put it, maybe it's it's almost like not a, a power vacuum in a, in a normal sense in another way, which is that there's just nothing that could exist like this that existed before or after. There's no, no, no nation could have possibly put this all back together. No nation could step in and replace Valyrian hegemony. It's just not possible. There's no means for that. Their central location, their dragons... I mean, it's almost like the death of God. A whole pantheon was killed off, like in a, in a fantasy scenario where that's possible, where they're like, they had proof that there were living gods and that they're now dead. <laughs> it's like that kind of power vacuum we're talking about. So usually a power vacuum gets filled, but in this case, it's just not possible. We're not just talking about leadership. We're talking about the entire apparatus. Every top administered, every official, every powerful, influential member of every family, with very few exceptions, but very few, because many of those outside of the Valyria were killed in this upheaval, as we said. And the dragons. I mean, that's the really obvious thing that they can't replace. That's, that's a big part of their control. I mean, not just the aristocracy and their means of control, the dragons or whatever, but also the people they were controlling are all gone too. Yeah, right? like the yeah. The population is all gone. Everything is gone. Oh, every port that they would have like done commerce through, every farm that would have been raising food and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I was thinking about, like you said, even if they're really were gods and they really did die. Well, there aren't other gods to replace them. Doesn't, you know. Yeah, imagine yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. It would be like that. It would be like not other gods. No other gods can come along. There aren't, they, they don't exist. <laughs> the Century of Blood, like I said, is a broad enough topic and widespread event that we will cover the events that happen northwest and north and east separately, other than to mention them briefly, like Slaver's Bay, Karth, the Dothraki, the Kingdom of Sarnor and others. So yeah, we'll save those for later when we deal with those topics individually. When we talk about the Dothraki, we'll we'll start with the Century of Blood with them and Kingdom of Sarnor, we'll go back even farther. And well, they end during the Century of Blood, so it's also <laughs> a capstone in that sense. Can I say a thing about Atlantis that some people will appreciate perhaps? Sure. You just keep bringing up Atlantis and I just really have to mention that the animated movie Atlantis all the Atlanteans have white hair. Really? Yeah, Kida <laughs> and her dad, Kasha Ooh, Kim. You know, that's cool. that, that animated Disney movie. Of, it's a Disney, Disney movie, right? movie. Yeah. They all have white yeah. hair and like bright blue eyes. But anyways, I, that's just, cool. <laughs> I, I think of the Valyrians. Now also consider... Maybe George did too. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> now also think, for the... Oh, go ahead. I think Valyria... Yeah, Valyria predated that movie. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it would have, yeah. 
those other regions too, the century of blood as a phrase might not, might have less meaning. Events played out differently there. It's more like the loss of Valyria removed a barrier to them so much less so that it just overwhelmed their society. It enabled them to partly fill this power vacuum. Whereas for other nations, it was like everything. It's a term, so it's kind of a term like the Dark Ages where people confuse that term with a global thing. Whereas the Dark Ages is really a European thing. It was really more one region with ripple effects elsewhere. For example, it clearly impacted Volantis, the Century of Blood and the Doom of Valyria, more than it did Storm's End. And certain cities and towns ceased to exist at all, like Sean said, so that's, that's a huge effect. <laughs> but Storm's End was impacted, right? Just less so than Volantis. So they would feel it differently. The Century of Blood, the term in Volantis would have deep meaning, whereas the Storm's End, it's... It was an interesting historical thing that that happened a while back that is noteworthy. So the farther away from it you go, the less meaning the term would have, the less it would mean. But everybody knows about the doom of Valyria. We talked about this a few times before, and may still, just the idea of the effects of volcanoes. It would have affected people in ways that they might not understand. Like if it had the ash in the sky, the temperature raised a degree, it might have caused, you know, crops to fail in certain areas and yeah, even, you know, you know, we didn't understand this hundreds of years ago when it happened, but we've started to understand it nowadays. Crops failing also can lead to revolts and wars and migrations and so on. Yeah, it's interesting because we don't have a lot of that as part of this description. The century of blood is mostly about politics and upheaval and wars and the new societies that formed. We don't actually hear a whole lot about whether the sky was dark for a few summers or for a season or two. It pro- almost certainly was. Now, it's interesting we do hear that when we get to Hard Home. The topic of Hard Home will be our chance to come back to volcanoes if we don't get as far as we want to today. And that's be that's interesting because there's vivid descriptions of ash and long-term damage and devastation and the sky being cloudy. And that was only 600 years ago, which is longer than the doom. <laughs> longer ago than the doom. So maybe the difference is that it was Westerosi scholars that were able to study hard home, whereas and, the doom is so much farther away. Maybe so they don't I'm have as much info. I, I feel like hard home is about as far from, say, Old Town as Valyria is. Yeah, I'd, they'd say you're I, about I think right. like, we were just talking about this. I think it you know, has something to do with not necessarily distance, but height or, you know, there's a lot of factors I feel like that could lead to whether you could see the effects from Old Town or not. Like, mm. it's possible that uh, Hard Home is farther, but you could still see it in yeah. Old Town because of how it's placed on the earth. You That's know. true, maybe. I'm not sure. Here's, here's another factor. There was a volcano in 1985 in Colombia. It was only a three on the scale. And it's like the Richter scale, right? Yeah. As opposed to Mount Vesuvius was probably like a five. And, you know, there have been some sevens or whatever. This, anyway, this was this only a three. Tonga one was a five, by the way, at least so far. They yeah. Was a five, yeah. So there was one in Columbia, there was only a three. And it's one of the most destructive that there have ever been. It killed like 20,000 people. Mm. And the reason is because it, it wasn't this massive explosion into the sky spewing out all kinds of ash or whatever. It was that the lava that came out melted all the ice on the mountainside oh. and caused mudslides that flowed down and just completely wiped out a city. And so maybe maybe what happened in Valyria might have not been huge, massive into the sky explosions. It would have spread ash and you know changed the weather, but it might have been enough to flow down, melt ice, 
cause tsunamis that would have wiped out ports. You could see it could cause destruction. It might not have had like Earth worldwide climate. It probably had both because we de- we know that the explosions yeah, happened, yeah. <laughs> but the other stuff, and we, and we know that like tidal waves happened. For example, we know like Victorian goes to the Isle of Cedars, which was just de- destroyed by tidal waves. There was like one tower on the island that wasn't destroyed because they were above the water. <laughs> and everyone was like, oh my God, yeah. the whole island just vanished below us. Yikes. <laughs> so yeah, it's hard to imagine. We'll work our way through the various phases as best as we can. Of course, there's a lot of lack of information for certain sources and the standard caveat r- remains where when we talk about Cohor, for example, we'll have a chance to look at the specifics of Cohor. Here, we're looking things more as a group. We're looking at the free cities as a whole, less so than as individuals. And let's start with them. The free cities, the free in the term free cities has never been very straightforward. It's, it's changed over the years what, you, what they mean by free. Even when they were first founded, they were called the free cities and they were ruled by Valyria. But it was more of a nominal control of somewhat independence. It was different than the cities that were part of the Valyrian Peninsula that were directly controlled. So it's a little different, like governance structure. The farther out they had, it was a way to maintain integrity over large distances. So they were freer than some of the other places, but again, free needs to be put in quotes. So when Valyria vanished, they became even freer, but still not free. I mean, a lot of them have slavery in them. So it's this, this, the free part refers to the city, not the citizens. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're free of the control of some higher entity. Yes. Not that everyone in the city is has their own freedom. Absolutely. Now, because even, even in Bravos, that is ag- very aggressive against slavery, you could point to semantic definitions of free where someone is just so, is, is too, lacks the means to truly feel free. But that's, that's, depends on what you look at, how you Look at the word free. The word free itself already has a lot of definitions. It's not just this scenario where it gets confusing. So Nina writes, they, there has always been an irony about the freedom of the free cities with the, with the exception of Bravos. Yeah, there's the majority. It's not just that some people in these cities are slaves. It's that the majority of them are in a lot of these places. And that's a big deal because in some of these cases, the slaves or the people that may have seen themselves as slaves based on the level of control exerted over them. They were able to rise up in some cases and throw off the yokes, throw off the the power structures, and maybe even take control, or in some cases, escape. Very early on, for example, the first chapter of the first book that Daenerys has, which is, I think, the fourth chapter period, she thinks, and she's really young when she thinks this, so this is a, a fairly astute observation for someone her age. She says, there's no slavery in the free city of Pentos. Nevertheless, they were slaves. And she's thinking about herself at this point. She knows that she and Viserys can't leave if Illyria doesn't want them to. They have no swordsmen to protect their will, you know, what they want to do. If Illyria's like, oh, seize them, they're seized. No, they can't do anything about it. There's no family they can call. There's no dragon they can summon. Daenerys recognized the peril of their situation, even as Viserys is throwing his weight around. I get this, I get that, I do this, I tell you what to do. And she's like, that's not... You have nothing backing that up other than what, your hair color, your, your birth, <laughs> your family name. That really doesn't go that far. So she perceived this right away. And this is, this is the truth of it right here. This is like an administrator that survived the doom walking around being like, I'm still Valyrian. I'm still in charge. And they're looking at him like Illyria looks at Viserys when he's like, I'm going to take on Khal Drogo myself, you know, or Robert. I'm going to kill him myself with my sword. And 
Illyria's like, good luck with that. Illyria's trying yeah. not to laugh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> this is, I, I imagine there were some dudes that still didn't get it. They were like, no, you're not, you're not in charge anymore. These guys want to kill you. If they want something from you, it's something they can get from you, not something they want to do for you, which is exactly the case with Illyria. He's not doing this for them. <laughs> These poor kids. He's not doing it out of some respect for the heritage, per se. Or, yeah. Some, yeah. Some, he's subduing to his authority. Yeah. yeah, he's playing the Game of Thrones in his own way, for sure. <laughs> and when there's power to seize, the worst people come out of the word work to seize that power, right? This is their opportunity. Here's a one-liner. What followed in the sudden vacuum with chaos? Yeah, right? Obviously. Extremely high on the chaotic scale. Like all the world's little fingers were having a field day or a field century. A field of ladders. Chaos is a ladder. It's a century <laughs> of ladders. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really rare time because not only is there power that can be seized, but it's houses, dynasties, crowns can be created. Laws can be made or destroyed or ignored where common people cannot expect to be left alone as the high lords play their Game of Thrones. Old bloodlines still had power but less so signaling to many others that it's their time to move up in the world. It's a truly unique opportunity. Not just political and martial power, but economic, right? Valeria was the center of trade. No longer, it's just gone. Different buyers, different demand, different markets, different trade routes, knowledge of what was going on before is lost. I mean, the more you think, spend time thinking about it, you can just keep coming up with things that would just be gone. <laughs> things that would just vanish, that would have to change. It's just endless cesurus of, of possibilities. And we also, what also makes it so unique is that usually when something is destroyed, usually when a powerful empire falls, it's gradual, right? They lose power, they lose their grip, and it's, it's slow. Valeria, like, was destroyed at the height of their power. That's another thing that's really hard to fathom. Like, you don't usually stop at your height, <laughs> at your peak. <laughs> like, you, you have to come back down a bit and slowly fall apart. You know, they just boom. That was another parallel I was considering was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm. That, that, that would have created a big power vacuum. It wouldn't have been as complete of a vacuum because, again, there were like countries that were part of the Soviet Union that just became their own country. Yeah. They had their own leadership, but they're still within there, you know, controls of the Communist Party, people grabbing for power and corruption that could take over. I mean, uh, all the violent conflicts and everything. And another uh, difference in that one is that when the Soviet Union collapsed, they weren't the clear dominant power of the world, mm. right? There, the U.S. or whoever else still had the the means and motivation to sustain stability, yeah. right? But even aside from all that, this is definitely more of a contrast and a comparison because it didn't suddenly happen. It, it was chipped away at, you know, Czechoslovakia and Poland, different countries, different leaders, Gorbachev, people in his circle were slowly kind of realizing that it was falling apart. And the Berlin Wall was sort of visual moment around the world, but a lot had happened building up to that. It wasn't this sudden collapse. Yeah, it wasn't like the, the Kremlin dude. was just like, people rushed the Kremlin Suddenly and slaughtered everyone or, or blew it up or something. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and here, so yeah, it's super hard to, to perceive this. And another thing that we have to reckon with that is not a real world thing, which is the, the notion that dragons themselves are related to the level of magic in the world, if not the, the source of it, or, you know, chicken and the egg kind of thing, which is, which causes magic, which is magic. But if the theory that dragons themselves are some of the source of magic, as in the more dragons in the world, the more magic there is in the world, 
Well, then all of a sudden that changed massively too. All of a sudden, the biggest source of magic in the world just vanished. All of the people that are trying to do magic, it's not working as well. <laughs> like we saw in, in Karth when the flame wizard guys were doing their little tricks in front of the crowds and Danny's, and Danny's enthralled. And Faith is like, that guy couldn't do that six months ago. He couldn't do that. But now that your dragons are here, he's doing it. Now, of course, we interpret that the possibility that this is the dragons are a, a greater extension of the magic returning to the world. But there's definitely a group of people that think the dragons are the cause. And if that's the case, then a whole bunch of people, just their magic just got weak or stopped working at all. And that's really yeah. fascinating. Is there some central magic that is enabling dragons and the other magic users or are the dragons enabling? You know, this is a classic case of what came first, the dragon or the egg. Yeah. <laughs> it really, really is. <laughs> So now when you think of the return of magic, ultra cruelty, slavery, godlike ambitions, a desire to return the world to the style of the ancient freehold, who do you think of? Well, let's talk about the parallel emperor, because I think of Euron. I suspect a lot of you thought of Euron when I said all that. So when we get to the Far East, we'll remember the Bloodstone Emperor parallels from the time of the Long Night and how well that lines up with Euron's story and a lot of Danny's. But here's one far more recent, far more on topic with the Doom of Valyria, Sean. Series of Kohor likewise claim that a visiting dragon lord, Aryan, raised forces from the Kohoric colonists and proclaimed himself the first emperor of Valyria. He flew away on the back of his great dragon with 30,000 men following behind afoot to lay claim to what remained of Valyria and to reestablish the freehold. But neither Emperor Orion nor his host were ever seen again. This was one of the more evocative passages that in the world of ice and fire. The name is even a bit similar to, to Euron, too. It's more, more visually than phonetically, but it also phonetically, especially depending on how you pronounce it. The vibes are very similar, too. I mean, Valyria didn't have an emperor, as we know. They had Freehold. They had these powerful dragon riding families. So this guy was trying to become sole ruler, and he had all these trappings, like Euron does. The attitudes, the Valyrian armor, you know, he's got, he claims to have gone there. It's odd, though. The story's still strange. Did he really just go there and die? I mean, did he really just push into the wasteland until it killed him? Just like plucky guy and his 30,000 troops. And then just they just died of fire and fumes? I don't know. It's, it's Something's odd about the story, right? But it is believable. I mean, Araya and Balerion. When this story first came out, we didn't have that world of uh, that fire and blood story to frame with this of other examples of people actually going to the peninsula, the smoking ruin of it. The way they came back, I mean, I guess I can believe it. Something awful happened. They got infected with whatever was in Area, and they didn't have a dragon to bring them back out because there was just the one and there was 30,000 guys and one emperor. <laughs> did they really follow him in there? Did they really trudge through the smoking? I mean, where did they think they'd find food? I don't know. There's a lot of details missing yeah. from this story. I'm very curious. Especially when you have that many people and a dragon rider, you would think that like the dragon could like see far enough ahead right? before they marched into some <laughs> danger, or someone in the group would be like, "I'm not going any far. Let's turn back now." Or, but you know, maybe there was like something they didn't, they couldn't perceive or understand, some poisonous gas or radiation or something. Yeah, know? he fired them up somehow, huh, pun intended. But did promise them wealth and I don't know. But yeah, I mean, they were really used to obeying the dragon lords. Like their their obedience just runs that deep. I mean, I don't know. Co uh, Nina points out Kohor is also the most magical and sorceress of the free cities. So maybe they 
felt some sort of connection to this guy directly, like the the the, the last sorcerer, dragon lord, prince guy. Like they want to rally behind him. It makes sense. I mean, thousands of years of being ruled by these people. It kind of makes sense you would rally behind the one guy left, how, even if how he's got long a terrible ago plan. Did, how long ago was his his venture? Right after the doom, so four hundred and give or take a few years. Do we think there's any chance that he just stayed there? That he set up some sort of empire, community, some sort no, of like a no one ever heard from him again. Mutiny on a bounty scenario, or what was the the uh, apocalypse now or something? And you know, he just uh, some secluded empire that they just stayed there you never know i guess but it doesn't seem it seems like people would have heard of it by now i mean there's definitely rumors of people living in some of the ruined cities and maybe affected by the the magical fallout like mantari says multiple two-headed people not necessarily that the second head works you know like melee's the monstrous that kind of thing but sometimes they do apparently like what's his name had a two-headed slave from mantari so yes and okay guys so yeah, there's a lot of room for imagination here. Let's just leave it with that. <laughs> it's really, one could really imagine. It reminds me a little bit of the Tyrell army that just set out from, I guess it was House Uller from Hellholt, and then they just vanished. They were never seen again. They just vanished in the deep sands of Dorne. The army got lost and then got covered by the sand. And yeah, maybe that happened. Maybe they got lost. Maybe they couldn't, maybe they, they, they got deep in there and then they couldn't figure out how to get back out. <laughs> <laughs> the clouds and smoke yeah. were too intense. Who knows? So yeah, so it's really it's, it's really neat. And, and Euron again using the tropes and traditions of Ironborn culture in order to seize control of Ironborn society while actually having a grander plan to really just use them as a springboard to greater power. He doesn't care what happens to the Ironborn in the long run. I don't think <laughs> he's got no sympathy or you know connection, empathetic connection to his own people. He's all he's all about himself. So that story doesn't really go anywhere. They just died. It's a int- really interesting anecdote, but maybe maybe a comparison to Euron. But let's move on to the next bit, which is we- we've called Valyria's first daughter. And you'll quickly see why. Volantis, the mightiest of the free cities, quickly laid claim to Valyria's mantle. Men and women of noble Valyrian blood, though not dragon lords, called for war upon the other cities. The Tigers, as those who advocated conquest came to be known, led Volantis into a great conflict with the other free cities. They had great success at first, their fleets and armies controlling Lys and Mir and commanding the southern reaches of the Rhoyne. I need to point out Constantinople as a potential comparison, uh, partial at least. They considered themselves a new Rome. When the Roman Empire fell, they tried to claim a lot of that old power. As Volantis styles itself the first daughter of Valyria, Constantinople underlined the fact that they were Roman. They called themselves Roman, not Greek, so that they could, it would help them, you know, politically lay claim to that old power structure. It's a great example. And there's a similarity here because the Volantines still to this day have the inner part of the city behind the famous black walls where only people who can trace their ancestry back to Valyria itself can live. This was probably a bit of a refuge when some of the worst chaos was going on. Uh, Of course, it was a refuge only for people who were already rich and well-protected. And it may be that again when Daenerys returns, or I guess doesn't return, arrives at Volantis and perhaps the slaves rise up. Well, (laughs) the Black Walls might be the only place for the old blood to hide. If even that works, which it may not. So 
Yeah. The Byzantine Empire, very good example as a comparison. It tried to hold on to the trappings and power of Rome, but wasn't able to do that fully. It just was never as powerful or as central or as mighty. So it, it makes sense to think of it as a daughter or a child of some kind. That metaphor works pretty well because it's not as powerful as the former. It's, it's, it's one member of the family rather than the whole family. <laughs> you made me think of another thing, I don't know, comparison, contrast to the idea of Rome, Italy sink into the ocean or England, that there was another sort of parallel power structure that would have still been maintained across their empires, religion. Uh, yeah. the, the church still had bishops and you know locations and even military force that would have maintained some semblance of order that can, the government controlled that would have gone away, which as far as I know, Valera didn't have anything like that. So. You're right, because Valera was very open with its religion. It was like, worship whatever you want. So there are probably lots of there wasn't one central religion that dominated the others, as far as we know. And if it was, it would have been probably seated in Valeria, which was destroyed, like the, the head of whatever Valerian churches may have been around. That certainly would have gone down with the rest. Very good point. We know, for example, Volantis currently has the largest red temple in the world. That's a certainly a powerful religion, one that existed even back then. But it's also an example of religion that didn't wasn't super popular in Valeria itself. Remember that quote we had last time of, they didn't like the freedom of religion because they're monotheistic and zealous about theirs being the one true faith. So they moved away from Valyria and lots of that. That worked out well for them. They're probably like, yeah, see, our faith led us away from that. <laughs> <laughs> our guy knows all about fire. <laughs> he told us, <laughs> get out of there, man. I can see it coming. Nina points out an interesting little tidbit from Valentine society. Note that the triarchs, the elected triarchs, are forbidden to have their feet touch the ground while they're in office to show that they're elevated above everyone else. Nina believes, and I tend to agree, that this is a throwback to the dragon riding families who wouldn't touch the ground because you're riding on dragon back. You know, you're above everybody. This symbolic nature of being above everybody, both physically and metaphorically, power structure-wise. I like that. I think that fits. It's a good, good catch or good call. I like the idea of that, but I but I want the opposite of that. I feel like <laughs> leaders should not be able to have their feet leave the ground. You should be allowed to wear shoes. You got to be one of the people. You got to barefoot for a year. I thought about Book of Boba yeah. Fett there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with all the huts, how they had they carried around on all their palanquins. Uh, yeah, the palanquins, you know, and then Boba tries to walk around and like no. You can't just be normal. Yeah, it's like walking. <laughs> Why aren't you? And that, and we saw that in Volantis, right? Like the if you're walking, you're poor. Only if you're anybody at all, you take one of the elephant rides, right? That's that's what Jorah told Tyrion's. Like if you're not, if you have any status at all, you don't walk because <laughs> that's how much slave labor is available and how much ingrained this separation is. Well, we separate ourselves from the rabble. You know, that's their attitude. I feel like Oberon would have walked. Jon Snow would have walked. <laughs> Jon Snow would definitely have walked. And Oberyn, he'd get killed for maybe. it. Oberyn dated, one of Oberyn's yeah, wives yeah. was a woman of behind the black walls, so he wouldn't have walked with her. She would have been like, no, no way. We're, we're right. He's like, fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whatever. Um, That's Nymeria's mom. N Nymeria's mom? Yeah, Nymeria. Nice, yeah, which is ironic that yeah, it's, it's the exactly. Valentines who the, destroyed the Roin. named after Nymeria of the Roinar. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole other story. Oberyn with his sense of humor there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so next quote. Here's a emerging quote-unquote hero. He was a hero to some Valentines, but not, not to others. And I don't think we would recognize him as a hero, but 
again, it's all matter where you're standing or no. not standing in the case of triarchs who aren't allowed to <laughs> have their feet touch the ground. <laughs> Nicios Coheros's journals contains a report of the triarch Rano, who had been returned as triarch for 40 years running, for he was a great hero during the century of blood. After his 40th election, he declared himself triarch for life. And though the Valentines loved him, they did not love him so much as to see their ancient customs and laws usurped for his ease. He was seized by rioters not long after, stripped of rank and title, and torn in half by two war elephants. Yikes. <laughs> they really didn't like that. This sounds very much like Julius Caesar, doesn't it? <laughs> a guy that was just yes. tired of winning and yeah. was like, yep, I'm, I'm emperor now. Or maybe like Augustus, but Augustus pulled it off. He did become emperor. <laughs> Julius Caesar was murdered by the other senators, not by the citizens. So it's, there are certainly differences. But yeah, <laughs> this is a guy that became powerful because he kept winning battles, That's big, which is very true of Caesar. He was a war hero. And he tried to use, the, use that popularity to, to advance higher. This guy is similar. Now, Tyrion and Jorah, they see this guy. They see his statue. It's a headless statue, like a lot of real world behaviors when statues aren't popular they get defaced or they don't have to be unpopular it really can just take one person that doesn't that just you know one teenager <laughs> sometimes you hear that people take like defacing a statue on a college campus like, you've been to a college campus before it's not really that strange man like yeah, this like isn't some political defaced. statement you know <laughs> you said deface disease ah or de-head yeah <laughs> de-arm de foot in this case. It all comes back to the feet with these Valentines. <laughs> so t it enabled Tyrion and Jorah to have some nice history. Tyrion's asking questions because he's curious. It makes sense for his character. And we're glad when he does that because he's getting some answers and we get more history. It's pretty cool. So even post-Valyria, Nina writes, the fear of a single ruler remained paramount. That was what the 40 families, one thing they did pretty successfully was it doesn't seem like if anyone ever seized power, it wasn't for so long that, that it made the history books in a way that George seemed to need to tell us. So quite possibly, it was never much of a thing at all. It's really ingrained, even after the fact, that you don't have a king or an emperor. Also, a similar parallel to Rome, right? They, didn't, they really didn't want that. They were very like, no, we're not going back to the days of kings. That's why we have consuls and all these other new forms of government to not have that. So this is kind of like that because Roman had two consuls that were elected for a year. <laughs> the triarchs, three of them instead of two. George likes to increase the number, you know. <laughs> and instead of people being pulled apart by horses, they're pulled apart by elephants. You know, it's a similar kind of stuff. Remember Jamie pointed out that there was that phase of tyrants where there was a bunch of people took over and did various things. And then, and then there was a massive pushback against that whole wave of tyrants. And then that set the stage for a while where they're like, no more single rulers, <laughs> whether they're kings, tyrants, doesn't matter what you call them. We're done with that. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's kind of neat because it's almost ironic. Like the Valentine version of the Valyrian government is actually decent. I mean, forgetting the slavery, obviously, I'm not talking about that part. I mean, like just the, the structure of having multiple rulers that aren't empowered like the Valyrian Dragonlords to just go out and do evil stuff. These triarchs don't have that level of power. They can't just go out and start wars. In this era, they could. The tigers were in power. The tigers were warlike. They could start wars. They had the population behind them. But there's a big problem. There's a thing about war. <laughs> For winning, it's great. 
there's enough people are going to, even if there's some people who don't think it's great within your own population, you're mostly going to be able to do whatever you want if you're a winner. War heroes, leader war heroes, triumphant conquerors. Ah, you're very popular if you're that. And that's what this Hirano guy was for a while. Then he blew it, right? And, well, there's other examples of this. So, Aegon the Conqueror himself, they tried to bring him into this. It's unclear exactly what role they would have asked of him. I suspect they might have wanted to put him at the top, though. He was a dragon lord. He was the dragon lord in the world at this point. There's obviously his sisters, but he was the top guy, the top person, the one they would, if they would be willing to accept a leader, it would be him. So I wonder too, but Aegon, this came along later, much later, right? Aegon was towards the end of the Century of Blood. So his ancestors would have been in charge before that. They, they had dragons. They had Balerion even. Did they try to make this offer to Gaiman the Glorious or Damien, the other rule lords of Dragonstone, whose names I'm forgetting off the top of my head? The ones who came after Anar the Exile and Danis the Dreamer and all that. I wonder if they did. Uh, if so, it, it seems they said no. <laughs> or they decided to stay out of it. They saw what happened to the other dragon lord families that, that weren't swallowed up by the doom, saw them all get murdered, and were like, maybe we'll just chill here on our island for a while while things die down. <laughs> it's not a good time to be a dragon lord out in the world. I could see that. And eventually, actually, what Aegon did, we'll get to a bit later, he did the opposite. Not only did he not join them, but he joined their enemies and fought against them. So he certainly seemed to think they were a threat to his ambitions in Westeros, or if he even had his ambitions in Westeros yet, it's not clear, but it's a really interesting thing to think about, something that if you, if you any of anyone out there has insight or curiosities or questions about that aspect, send them to us, because we'll, when we get to the conquest and get to Aegon, we'll have more opportunity to come back to that. Another big development in this era was the emergence of much larger number of sellsword companies. As far as we know, sellsword companies weren't a big thing in this part of the world during Valyria. It's all ruled by one place. There's not as many wars. There's not as many small-scale wars breaking out. You don't have as much need for mercenaries when there aren't small-scale wars happening all over the place. But all of a sudden, there's just huge numbers of small-scale wars and, and some bigger ones, too. There's huge numbers of need for fighting people and huge numbers of people who maybe didn't have a lot of skill at fighting, all of a sudden realized all the things that were protecting me, all the societal securities, everything I got from living in this city, everything that I was protected by is no longer there. Anyone with money is going to be like, I might need some guards. <laughs> I need some soldiers. I have enemies that might want to kill me. I have enemies I want to kill. So much need for violence, for paid for violence. So here's a quote that succinctly describes the emerging situation. The disputed lands have been the birthplace of more of these so-called free companies than any other place in the known world, beginning during the century of blood. Yeah, the disputed lands was a nice place, supposedly, before, before all this. So yeah, there wouldn't be lots of sellsword companies fighting over that before the doom. It was a settled, stable, fertile area that mostly was decent, minus, of course, as always, minus the slavery. You can never get away from that here. Since this is a whole century, Sean, I mean, this sets up like a long-term developments, behavior, cultural touchstones. I mean, entire generations of people born and lived their lives often shorter than prior generations, given the upscale of violence in an era where this was the new normal. 
In terms of stability, prosperity, and safety, the kind of stuff you need to like raise a family, the basic things you need to just exist in the world without anyone bothering you to, you know, do all that. There'd be a massive drop off in just that. The level of people that can just have basic day-to-day normal lives, a lot less of that. You know, I, I brought up the idea of like the collapse of the Soviet Union, which wasn't like a complete power vacuum. And there are still other stable forces in the world and more interconnection of the world. And still, you know, 30 years since that happened, we're seeing repercussions, violent, terrible, disruptive repercussions of that happening. You know, Yeah. And a lot of real world mercenary companies do form from situations like that. There's, there's plenty of groups of Russian mercenaries out there that formed in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union that were able to arm themselves with former Soviet weaponry that was just unmanaged. That's something that we don't have here. In this scenario, that is a real world scenario when the Soviet Union collapsed. Yeah, there was just all this military gear just like chilling that people could just snack and run off with because, which they did. That's how a lot of weapons ended up in the hands of some bad people. I mean, some of those weapons ended up in the hands of bad people through just regular government channels too. Let's not be, let's not, <laughs> let's not lie to ourselves here or confuse the issue. But yeah, that, that didn't happen here. There weren't like mass weapons of destruction just abandoned, ready to be picked up. A power structure is a mass weapon of destruction if wielded a certain way. It just isn't automatically that. It can be used other ways. So let's talk about the, the disputed lands a little more here. Here's another quote. Far bloodier, though less frequent, were the land where the land wars fought over the disputed lands, a formerly rich region that had been so devastated during the century of blood and afterward that today it is largely a wasteland of bone and ash and salted fields. Similar sounding to what the Valyrians may have done to some of the slaver cities, right? The, the, the sowing with bone and ash and all that, which we talked about, probably an exaggeration in terms of the salt, but still, the devastation, still accurate. A minor doom of a sort, right? Constant warfare that just emerges. You, instead of a state of relative peace, you have just a generation of back and forth warfare that's different than a, an instant devastation, but it's just as tragic in its own way, this much endless violence. I mean, that's awful. And now you can imagine that the disputed lands was prior, it was probably fought over, but fought in quotes, like in political wrangling, like merchant deals and the palaces of Valyria, backroom stuff rather than armies marching on each other. Because then you would have the level of devastation that you have there now. Even even armies marching on each other is not likely to be a hundred year long thing. Yeah, you know? right. Or, or if it is, it might not necessarily disrupt the farming of the land. Because that's something that'll happen is that when there's not a certain level of stability. Yeah an individual farmer or a community, whatever, they can't afford to put the effort into sowing the fields and irrigating the water and planting the seeds when they don't know for sure when, when, when autumn comes that they'll be able to harvest it. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah. Like those people instead True. join the army or leave the land and now the land's not being irrigated and it becomes more desolate and et cetera. Yeah, and it can take generations to restore the land to its former state of productivity, either yeah, because it yeah. hasn't been maintained or because it's been devastated or both. It's amazing how George works little examples of this into his own story, into the main story, rather. It's all his story. <laughs> and for example, the Miranese, they cut down the olive trees outside of Mirene to deny her besiegers food. And she points out like, yeah, and it's going to take 30 years to restore that. The olive trees, just that's yeah. just how long it takes for olive trees to be fully productive. You just, there's no way to fast forward that. It's boom. Like that decision to cut down those olive trees, that's 
Two generations of yeah. olive trees are gone, at least. Two generations are going to live without that. That's a massive food supply that's just gone. It's not, it's not smaller. It's just gone. I mean, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The disputed lands, to me, also reminds me of the scenario that happens in the Riverlands. For example, the Riverlands, before Aegon comes along, before Westeros was united into one whole, like setting aside that Dorne wasn't part of it for a while, just ignore that for now, Riverlands became safe again. It became no longer the place sandwiched between all the other kingdoms that everyone always fought on that had various little natural protection. <laughs> you know, it's always like the place people come down and attack and fight and tear apart. The second things break out in the War of the Five Kings, what happens? The Riverlands is devastated by Tywin, right? Like the second, <laughs> before the wars even started, Tywin's like, destroy the Riverlands. You know, I want it to burn from God's eye to the, the Red Fork. People fighting over the Riverlands was an extremely normal thing for so long. And then it just stopped because Aegon's like, no, I'm the central authority. We don't do that anymore. And if you mess with me, dragons. And they're like, all right, boss, you're in charge. So this is that being removed. The disputed lands was a fertile region that was farmed and people lived in. It became the Riverlands (laughs) when Valyria's protection vanished. This is a good example of, yeah, it's good that Valyria is gone, but this is that collateral damage where people who were just minding their own business were all of a sudden in the war zone. You know, when there's a strong central authority, they're left alone. When that central authority is gone, this dangerous region that has become undangerous reverts to that dangerous power play zone where everyone wants it and they're fighting over it. That's the push and pull of empires and kingdoms and ambitious people, ambitious, cruel people. All right. I want to remind everybody that we have patron-only episodes and early access to other episodes. Well, if you join Patreon, as well as access to scripts, shout-outs, other fun stuff like that, go to patreon.com, History of Westeros, to sign up, browse the levels and the benefits, pick the one that's right for you, and sign up. You know, very important piece of data here. If you look at the word Valyrian and you switch the word, the letters L and N, it becomes venereal. (laughs) (laughs) Very important. (laughs) Very important detail there, folks. You can't forget that. The first mention of the Century of Blood comes with that mention of Triarch Hirano in Tyrion VI, A Dance with Dragons. That's the one where Tyrion plays lots of Sivas with people to get information. (laughs) He plays with like the port, the border guard, that port guy, and yeah, all that stuff. So after Volantis is making a lot of moves, they're trying to seize power. They're fighting against some of the other free cities. The problem was a lot of the other free cities said, uh-uh, you're, we know Valyria. You're no Valyria. You may have some Valyrian blood, but you don't have those dragons. We're not bowing to you. You don't get to say what we do. We're free cities. We want to be free. So a lot of them started ganging up, pushing back on Volantis as a group or in differing groups. One of those groups was Kohor and Norvas. And here is an example of what went down when they came together. Volantis suffered further defeats at Dagger Lake, where the fire galleys of Kohor and, Nov- and Norvas destroyed much of the Volantine fleet that controlled the Rhoyne. And in the east, when the Dothraki began to swarm out of the Dothraki Sea, leaving ruined towns and cities in their wake as they fell on the weakened Volantis. At last, the elephants the Volantine faction who favored peace and who were largely drawn from the wealthy tradesmen and merchants who suffered most in the war, 
took power from the Tigers and put an end to the fighting. This is what I was talking about with the whole winning thing, right? (laughs) If you're winning, you're doing well. But they started losing and that was it. The elephants, the rich people, the rich upper class were like, all right, we're the next most powerful interest here. And we're also suffering lots of wealth loss, which they obviously they care about. So a strong military can dominate the merchants as they control the means of violence. And this control expands the more successful they are. But yeah, but when they're losing, not so much. That just, it's, just complete, it's a complete reversal. Everyone likes a winner. No one likes a loser. When we're talking about large scale populations like this, it's, it's almost straightforward. They started losing and they got, they didn't get a chance to lose anymore. Basically like, you look, no more, you're not in charge anymore. <laughs> That's that last line. Took power from the Tigers and put an end to the fighting. We can imagine that they reached out to their enemies and were like, look, we're sorry those jackasses were in charge. We've taken them down. We're in charge now. We just want to make deals. Let's make deals. We'll give you some money as way, by way of apology. And we'll get back to trading and everybody's cool. That was probably a very welcome set of envoys. Uh, uh, while they probably had some grievances, like, oh, you're going to pay all right <laughs> for all that. <laughs> and the, the elephants were all like, yeah, we will. That's right, we will. <laughs> we're, we're rich. <laughs> It'll be easier to pay for it when your citizens aren't dying in war, when your farms aren't being burned down or untended, et cetera. So- yeah, and, they get, and now all of a sudden, they're the ones setting tax policies. They can, they can, they can bend it to their, to their advantage, even as they, they can put a lot of that damage on these families that put them in this, <laughs> this problem in the first place and try to cut themselves in on the new deals and all that. So yeah, there, there's a lot of ways for them to make it look like they're apologizing when really putting the brunt of that on the, the people that were responsible for it. The losing was the doom of the tigers. <laughs> and it was powered by greed and this ambition to be the thing that they had been treated like, right? It's like, it's very karmic in a sense. Their fathers in Valyria treated them like this, and they want to put that back out into the world. They want to treat other people, the rest of the world, the way Valyria treated them. It's on a small scale. You can really see it as a microcosm of the way individuals treat each other. It's amazing how often human behavior scales like that. And I think this is an example of that. Here is the different quote that also reflects that stopping of aggression from a different perspective. Here we go. It was only when they overreached and attempted to seize Tyrosh as well that their burgeoning empire collapsed. Unnerved by the Valentine aggression, Pintos joined the Tyroshi in resistance, Mir and Lys rebelled, and the Sea Lord of Bravos provided a fleet of 100 ships to aid Lys. Also, the Westerosi Storm King, Argalak the Arrogant, led a host into the disputed lands in return for the promise of gold and glory that defeated the Valentine host attempting to retake Mir. So what you can see from that is Tyra, they were successful in taking Mir and Lys, but then when they extended themselves, the local people in those cities they had taken took that chance to free themselves. This goes to show they didn't have the strength to hold all these possessions down, It was, which is where you get the sense that there was some greed and arrogance about this, thinking that there was a lot more of, we deserve this, than the thinking and planning of we can do this. There's more of what we deserve and less of what's actually possible. It seems like a lot of these moves were militarily unsound. And it's neat to think about Argalak the Arrogant. This is another character from Westeros living in this time, eventually Aegon's great foe during the conquest. At this point, they would have been somewhat allied, given that we know Aegon also attacked the, some ships in lease with Valerian. 
But Argilac was old when he fought Aegon. This may have been much earlier in the Century of Blood, well before Aegon got involved. Aegon may not have been born at this point because Argilac was like in his 60s when, when he lost to Oris and, and Rhaenys at the Battle of the Last Storm. So that's interesting to consider if this was a young Argilac, one more capable of leading his troops overseas and going into disputed lands. It sounds like a more young king's thing to do, but... This... It was before he was arrogant. <laughs> Argilac the just con- Argilac the confident. Yeah, <laughs> he got worse. You know, Argilac the naive. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to point out a lot of times I think about the difference between being arrogant and self self centered or self absorbed because there's it's a lot of line, crossover. Yeah. They're similar, but a lot of times maybe you're arrogant, so you think we can defeat, we can like accomplish this mission. And, and you might be right. And, and so you want to, now we did that. Now we'll attack this next city. And you might be arrogant, but you might also be right. But by being self-centered, you're not considering the impact it has on surrounding cities. Mm. They may feel threatened by it or their trade is being disrupted. And so if, if you had just taken a moment to consider outside your little focus of your self-centered view, not even accounting for your arrogance, you might have had a different plan or a different take. If you just sent envoys to say, oh, look, we're not going to attack you, we'll set up trials with you, trade routes with yeah. you. That might have been enough, you know? Yeah. Um, well said. Good said. Nina writes, the intervention of Argilac Durandon really emphasizes how much the political paradigm had shifted in the wake of the doom. While there had certainly been some interaction between the Freehold and Westeros, pre-doom, after all, Valyrian steel swords had started trickling into the continent, they, but they still were mostly separate political spheres. The Westerosi royal dynasties quarreled with each other on Westeros. The Freehold dealt in Essos, and the Freehold wasn't trying to expand into Westeros. It wasn't really a wasn't really a lot of clash. There was mostly just trade between the two. Now it's a new sense of global politics with all this redrawing of barriers and borders and cultures and who's in charge. You've got a restart of a lot of these relationships, or at least a reset, or at least a reimagining. It's also really interesting to think about how different the political situation was in Westeros too, because there's no seven kingdoms, right? It isn't just one united realm where they can sit back and say, look, if any Volantines or any SOC armies come, the whole continent's going to be united against them. That's not the case in this era, right? If an associate fleet lands in the Stormlands and attacks Argilac's people. That's his problem only. The Reach isn't going to help. Dorne's certainly not going to help. <laughs> and to the north at this point, especially, is the burgeoning Ironborn Kingdom of House Horror, which definitely isn't going to help. <laughs> so they're like, yeah, he's on his own. So getting involved in this sense is maybe... He may have been thinking like, well, I'm going to get involved one way or another. We're right on the coast here. Pentos is so close. Lease, Mir, the Stepstones, all this is right nearby. If I don't take an active role in this, we're, it's going to take an active role in us, right? So maybe that's why he went over there, wanted some loot from the disputed lands, which surely came at the expense of common folk for the most part, you know, having their farms destroyed and all that. The Volantines overreached, right? You can call that arrogant. They were arrogant. So it really says a lot that they go so far that a guy called Argilac the Arrogant goes against them. <laughs> it's like the battle of the arrogance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's really interesting to think about the way these kingdoms operated when they were smaller. They had a lot, they were a lot less secure because they weren't monster dynasties comprised of an entire continent's worth of soldiers to call to 
to bear where they were united where it's like westeros versus essos that was not the case here they, i don't i don't think that attitude had as nearly as much you know, power that it would have say now we also hear that for example that someone attacked bravos during this era like the titan itself was actually used in battle with all its fancy like defenses which no one had ever tested before because they look really intimidating and it didn't go well. We're not actually told who it was, but whoever it was failed badly. I'm guessing it was the Volantines, <laughs> but that's a long way for a Volantine fleet to go all the way to Bravos. Maybe it was someone else, but anyway, it, it, I'm sure the Bravosi were happy to, to show what a bad idea it is. No one's ever going to try that again. <laughs> it was such a <laughs> failure, but I, I am really curious about that who it was, because George just says, not since the century of blood had anyone tested the, you know, the Titan or whatever. It was like, really? Someone tried that? Maybe it was slave armies. They just sent their slave soldiers in. They're like, I don't know. Maybe a sellsword company that was wiped out. And so they didn't mm. have a, enough of a name beforehand and were wiped out. So they don't, who they were exactly isn't remembered. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's a perfectly cromulent theory right there. There are nine free cities, as we know now. But there were potentially a 10th and 11th, Gagasos and Essaria. Gagasos, we have a whole bonus episode on, scripted. The location's in the Basilisk Isles. It's, it held on to sorcery, though probably not dragons, after for a while. It also ceased to exist during the Century of Blood, but not because of war. So that's uh, something that I suggest you look into. Another plug for our Patreon. There's a bonus episode you can get. As for the other city, Asaria, here's a quote. The Valerian colony Asaria, sometimes remembered as the lost free city, was similarly overwhelmed. Today, its ruins are known to the Dothraki as Vais Kaidok, the city of corpses. Is that kind of redundant and a bit terrifying? I mean, on one hand... Any city the Dothraki breach probably becomes a city of corpses. Like, what makes this one so more corpse-like than these other ones? Like, they destroyed a lot of cities. Also, the Dothraki take a lot of slaves, so maybe this is a hint that, I don't know, maybe they, a lot of people took their own lives rather than being taken as slaves. They entered the city and found everybody was dead already, or a lot of people were dead already. I'm just guessing. I really don't know, but... It's certainly interesting. Maybe they fought back more than the average city and more people died in the battle. That's possible. There's, there was one city that got noted for that called the City of the Blood Charge, one of the Sarnori city. They're just like, we're all going to die, but we're going to go out fighting. So they ran out of the gates and died, you know, went to Valhalla. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Sarnori Valhalla, whatever that was. But more on the Sarnori and the Dothraki you know, when we talk about those cultures directly. So Asaria... We don't get to know a lot about, but we know that it was a thing. It would have been um, maybe some prosperous ruler in town until, well, they found themselves without protection. Yeah. So loss of central authority. Let's talk about more of the common folk. So let's return away from looking at the nobles and the power brokers and then think about folks more like you and me, like us. Lo loss of central authority means loss of enforcement, justice, right? Imagine if there's just no court system anymore for the privileged enough to actually have that protection in the first place. Because let's not forget, a lot of people didn't have that in the first place, like slaves and really poor people. But if you had that sphere of protection, well, then you didn't anymore. Laws would just matter a whole lot less. Again, don't quote laws to men with swords. Who's going to enforce these laws when the people in power are fighting over who gets to enforce laws in the first place? 
It's like in England during the time, the, during the anarchy, aka the times of trouble. Two kings fighting against each other. The king is where law comes from. When the kings are fighting each other, there's no law. So it's bad. Yeah. And now there's like the hundreds of kings or wannabe rulers fighting each other. And yeah, it just, it's just really chaotic, really bloody. Here's another note from Nina that I find very apt here. We see this in E. Andel's note that, quote, it is said that some Valyrian dragon lords in Tyrosh and Lys were spared, but that in the immediate after, immediate political upheaval following the doom, they and their dragons were killed by the citizens of those free cities. Turns out if you enslave and abuse generations of people on a massive scale for the benefit of the dragon rider class, the moment the dragon rider class is revealed to be <laughs> mortal and vulnerable, those enslaved abused people are going to rebel there was no Valyria to protect its daughter cities anymore. No fear of draconic retribution. Yeah. think we do have an example of this in Westeros as well. Very good example. Nina supplies the destruction of the Targaryen dragons during the riding at King's Landing. The storming of the dragon pit. People were blaming the dragons for their woes, for all the destruction it was causing during the Dance of the Dragons. And they went right to the source and were like, look, we're, we've had enough. We're angry. We're as mad as we've ever been. We're willing to die to make this happen. We're a crowd whipped up into a maximum frenzy. We've got a religious leader, prophet, yelling at us to go even farther. Yeah. Stuff like that probably happened. I mean, there were there had to be religious upheaval. I mean, what what religion is not going to jump on this as an opportunity to say, see, <laughs> the demonic Valyrians, the gods finally like spoke. A lot of different religions would be able to spin this as their God did this. <laughs> like there, this is our great chance to rise. You know, like you can just hundreds of examples of this probably. What do you think, Sean? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Even, even if you assume that the religious leaders were genuine, if you will, they still might legitimately believe this is the case and rally their followers. But some who are willing to just take advantage of the situation and aren't even that genuine would also assume. Yeah, and some of them might not be capitalizing for power means. They might legitimately say, I need to lie to my people. I need to pump them up to save us, to keep us from being swallowed up by all this chaos. We need to be strong. We may have to do a few things dirty to survive. And that's the, just like we're talking about in the, in the, during the long night. I mean, like people may have to like, decent people might become indecent because they're literally starving. And when you're starving, you're not yourself, you know? And think about Melisandre, her attitude towards it. Like she, she has these genuine beliefs but she's also willing to use other tools, trickery or deceit or whatever to keep people on board with what she knows is right, quote unquote. I, I think that a lot about Moses too, the idea of like the Ten Commandments, like whether there's really a God, however much he believed them, he was in charge of all these people and they're trying to move across the desert and there's going to be conflicts along the way. Mm. And so at some point he's like, look, don't take other people's stuff don't sleep with your neighbor's <laughs> wife. Oh, just imagine different conflicts are being away. And he's like, God said, yeah, you, let me tell you, God said, thou shalt not steal, like all these things. And if you do these things, and some of them were like you know, principles of morality, but some of them were just things that would have caused conflict within the people. Like you can't have any other gods. All right, we got well, just this one God. You know, everyone get on board and get on the same page. You can see that there will be leaders of all sorts who, are going to need certain tools and, and, and methods and rallying points or whatever. And there were, this time period would have been full of that. Yeah. However genuine or corrupt they might have been, it would have been happening. So. You're really right. That's a really good point to raise too, because it's very common, historically speaking, that in times of severe trouble, societal upheaval, there's often 
an upswing in religion or in belief or in, in prayer or in faith or however you want to phrase it. And it's a lot of, it's the same reason. This power vacuum can be filled with gods, whether they're real or not. You believe in them, you appeal to that higher authority because the earthly authority isn't there anymore. You can see why they turn to that. It's like, well, we we were following this this lead and now it's gone. So this guy's this, here comes this new person saying, hey, there's this, follow this religion, this God. It's a new authority to get behind, a new, it makes you feel safe, it makes you feel secure. You're like, okay, now we have, we can make sense of all this chaos. We have some rules to follow. Like you said, don't mm-hmm. kill your brothers and sisters. Don't sleep with your family. Don't, oh, right. Yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> and, and, and you have a reason not to, and you can come to an agreement. Yeah, these things come together that way. It coalesces into, into a semblance of humanity again. You also have these phases of uh, evolution, but when you when you lose a central authority, though, like you were saying, that that suddenly the laws have less meaning, right? Yeah. But I, I believe, and as in some crazy belief I have, this sort of this philosophical political belief that even if we didn't have laws, everyone wouldn't just start murdering each other. Yeah. That we all have a certain sense of morality, and that you know, once someone does murder someone or steal something, maybe you have to figure out what the punishment is, and you might have to define different types of theft and. But you also have to figure out things like, uh, are, we overshi- are we overfishing this lake? You know, are we polluting the environment by mining this copper? There's a, and that, that's sort of thing that a law, a king, a ruler, a stable society, those types of laws will be figured out. Ostensibly, they're figuring out the right way to manage it. But that's a little bit more of like a long-term thing that allows a society to advance. And if you suddenly lose central authorities, people might start overfishing the lake or, you know, doing things that are bad on long-term sense, but they're not clearly immoral. In the very immediate aftermath of this doom upheaval, you might have people that do just start murdering left and right. They start stealing for yes. food, right? Mm-hmm. There might be these, you know, might makes right moments where people are like just struggling to not die of starvation or to warlords who are like trying to grab land or food or whatever. But yeah. as that slows down, you, I think that there won't just be a lot of random murder and theft, but there will be a need to decide on communal values. Yes. And that's where religion will come into play. Yeah, right. That, because that is where a lot of that originates. Not all of it, but quite a lot of it. Very good point. If we get back to what a lot of people would be faced with, some of them wouldn't have much choice, but maybe those who could, maybe those who could escape I would think there would be a lot of refugees, people fleeing the chaos to go elsewhere. We've seen it enough in the real world when a a region is overwhelmed by war, people leave. I mean, it's a pretty sensible, automatic thing to do. If you can't stay, if you're not willing to fight or unable to fight, you gotta go. What what other choice do you have? So given, obviously you can't leave if you were in Valyria because it blew up, but the farther away you go from the epicenter, the upheaval would be lesser, but there'd still be upheaval in so many different places. Uh, you would probably, a lot of people would leave. They would, and a lot of them would have a reason to leave immediately. Some would have reasons to maybe think about it a minute or like former slaves. If you're a slave and the slave empire collapses, that's your chance. Well, it might be your chance. You might still be like locked down by the local authorities. You know, the, whoever your master is may still have you in chains, but if you kill your master in this upheaval, you've got a chance to get away with it. Whereas if the government's all operating normally, you have almost no chance of getting away. Your chance to hop a ship and flee to another nation. When would you ever have this opportunity again? If you're a freed slave or a slave that maybe has a chance to fight his way to freedom or her way to freedom, 
it might be their one chance to get to their home, which may have been super far away, right? Some of these people were taken from like the other side of the Bone Mountains or from Sothorios or something like that, or from Nath, like really far away. And other people would just move because it's dangerous. Like locals, people who are from the region, they're like, this is too dangerous now, we got to go. Need to suggest maybe Bravo saw a large influx of people. It's a place that's a little more welcoming to refugees. It's not, you're not going to get enslaved there. So that's a good place to go. But that's really far. Not everyone could get to Bravos, right? You need to be able to take a ship. Like, and not everyone's going to be able to get on a ship and get to Bravos. That's, that's going to cost money. What's your thought on this, Sean, about this whole like idea of mass refugee populations? Some of them probably went to Westeros too. That's why I was building up to that. So if you want to talk about that as well, go for it. Well, the, the sad fact is that a lot of refugees just die. Yeah, that's true. They don't, they can't you know? escape. There's um, no, yeah, there aren't enough ships yeah. to carry them all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it also goes back again to that a central authority would do, it would be managed refugees, right? Mm-hmm, if, true. if you have a town of a thousand people and suddenly a hundred new people show up, that's a sudden 10% increase in the population. Is there enough food for everyone? Where's everyone pooping? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it, the, regular logistical problems. You're like, right. Even if everyone in that town is kind and welcoming, it's still going to be a logistical problem to absorb them all in. And that would be something, like you say, as you spread out from the epicenter, there would be like different types of issues. People like very near would move out to, to the next layer. And that layer would be a little overwhelmed by this sudden movement of all those people. And so some of them in that area would move out to the next layer and some would move through that. Eventually it would get spread out enough. But along the way, a lot of people die. A lot of people are, 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 are turned away. A lot of communities are disrupted by the refugees just because there's not enough food to support everyone. There would have been, you know, lots of negative stuff. But I, I, I want to maybe try to find a silver lining. Like some people are going are gonna to find new homes. They're yeah. going to find freedom. And there might be a, a cross-pollination of different values and cultures and stories and religions and stuff as people spread to new areas. It's a, a common result of migrations of that sort that I think is a a positive thing. And cities preparing themselves, building their infrastructures up better. You know, like when you do absorb those 100 people and then you build an infrastructure up to support them, there's going to be some growing pains in the middle. But after that, you're a better community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think also it's really important to point out that this is, most of this you lay at the feet of Valyria. They, by seizing so much power in the first place, by creating such societal imbalances, when the things holding it in place broke, it caused all this chaos. It's like building a dam and just not doing a very good job of making sure the dam is secure. Like eventually the dam is going to burst and flood the valley and kill all these people. You blame the poor dam design on that, not the water. Yeah. You don't blame natural causes for that. That was the, the bad dam. And this is, this is what this was. They had a bad dam on power <laughs> and on control. I mean, they couldn't have seen the doom coming, but certainly I think as a real world exercise, whenever people seize this much power and separate create these societal divisions, the aftermath is on them. And you have to see that from the beginning. You have to blame them from the start. Look, look, if you seize this much power, if you do all this, the pushback may not come for generations, but it's, that's at their feet too. You know, that uh, volcano in Colombia, that was a big part of the fallout of that, is that the Colombian government should have done more to Um, prepare a warning system and to not allow communities to be built in the wake of that. mm, And and it's another thing that's worth noting too. Most volcanoes don't just suddenly erupt out of nowhere. Usually there's like warning signs. They've erupted in the past, 
you know, and so nowadays we have uh, much more ability there, to detect them. Yeah. Yeah. There could have, should have been more planning. Like a lot of times when dams reservoirs, usually there is an area around where there just are no homes because if something goes wrong, it'll all be flooded. So just don't build homes in this, yeah. <laughs> this piece of land right here, you know? But uh, anyway, point is, yeah, that there's, I guess maybe the Valerian arrogance would not have like, what if we all go away? You know, they, 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 they never weren't know. considering that. Yeah, they're not, they don't, they're not very sympathetic. They're, like, they're not worried about what happens to other people. <laughs> and some things have to be learned over time by society. Some things, like you said, it takes generations for them to even happen. And when they happen once, you still, you know, aren't necessarily planning or expecting it to happen again, at least not in the next generation. And, and that's something our modern society, we're looking at things that might not affect us for generations, but we can't ignore them. We have to care about posterities. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now, maybe we shouldn't go so far in saying that every single city and community, like we don't want to imply that everywhere was violence and awful and horror. It would have been widespread, but there surely would have been some pockets of decency, some places that mostly it blew over. They were able to keep most of what they had together without fleeing or without having to flee very far. In other words, it wasn't just death and violence everywhere. So let's set the expectation. Uh, But still, displacement and flight would still be very common in other things. Now, Nina writes here, she also wonders if any former Valyrian families who escaped made their way to the Targaryens on Dragonstone, maybe for refuge after seeing what happened to so many other former Valyrians and how, how strong the pushback was, how the world was ready to revenge itself on thousands of years of Valyrian dominance on taking out on the few survivors. The Targaryens would suddenly have found themselves not just the last dragon riders, but like Nina says, uses the phrase mystically justified, which is a cool, <laughs> cool phrase. These dragon lords who the ones who now are dead had mocked the Targaryens for leaving. They thought they were cowards or weak or something. We're, we're not sure exactly what they said, but they were definitely made fun of for leaving. And now it's like, who's laughing now? So it also validates that they knew something. It's like, these guys, they knew something. They saw it coming. That makes them really special. Like, what's up with that? They actually per- predicted this. What else can they predict? <laughs> what else? Like this, you could see how some people would make that connection and go, well, these Targaryens are really... They're on top of things. Yeah, let's seek them out. See what their deal is. And maybe I could, that may be where some of Aegon's supporters came. They may not have been families that lived with the Targaryens when the Targaryens first left, but, Targary- but families that survived the doom and attached themselves to the Targaryens as the only dragon riders left. That makes a lot of sense. I like that theory quite a bit, Nina. Very good. Yeah. I mean, they have to go somewhere. <laughs> some of them would have established their own power, but surely some of them would have... Yeah, sought out the few Valyrian people <laughs> with power left in the world that weren't getting wars started over in Volantis. Like, <laughs> safer over here. These Valyrians in Westeros aren't starting wars with all the people around them. Yeah, go to where the few dragons were. Might make sense. So there's also another thing to remember, though, with that in mind. There's no King's Landing yet. So that's one place people wouldn't flee. There's no refugees in King's Landing because there's no King's Landing. So Old Town, Bravos, as we said, if we're talking, well, if we're just talking Westeros, obviously not Bravos, but Galltown, that's one of the major Eastern ports. Duskendale was a bigger port back then. It's, it's lost a lot of its prestige as a port because King's Landing is so close by. But like Rosby, a lot of these other places have ports. They're just not highly prominent. The Storm's End port? It's, it's got to have places for ships. I mean, yeah, it's got to have something going on there. It's not like a major port, but they've got to be docks and things like that. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there's a place, there's some nearby 
towns that are near the place that probably a lot of that might happen, like indirectly, like a ship stuff to a town and wheel it over to Storm's End. I'm not, it's not entirely clear, but yeah, there definitely would be spots to go. All right, so any last thoughts on refugees, Sean, or any, anything to add there? Certainly they'd be fleeing in other directions too. Let's not forget they'd be fleeing to plenty of other places besides Westeros, things we haven't thought about, maybe to the wall even, or beyond the wall, who knows? Or maybe less important to our story of Westeros, but they might have gone farther east. They might have gone to Karth or, or whatever. Yeah, you're totally right. You're right. Absolutely. Maybe even peculiar places like the Basilisk Isles. I'm not sure that would be safer there. But <laughs> a lot of them might have been seized along the way by Dothraki hordes. Yeah, you know? that's very true. You, I mean, they're, they're trying to go home and on their way home, they just get captured by someone else. A lot of them joined the, the free companies, yeah, you know, the uh, mercenary groups. You're right. For lack of, I mean, that is something that the sales companies would do. They'd be like, look, it's a dangerous world out there. Join us. We'll teach you how to fight. Strength the numbers. Bro- yeah, strength the numbers. Brothers in arms, all that. They'd be very appealing to some some scared people that, are, are aimless and un- disconnected. Like if you're an orphan, like if you're a 12-year-old boy, orphan walking around there and some recru- sellsword recruiter comes up to you and is like, hey, y'all, I'm going to join. You know, mm-hmm. like we got, we got warm food. We'll give you a sword, teach you how to use it. Of course you're going to do that. I mean, what kind of 12-year-old kid has the worldliness to know to avoid that or well, that's what the I call predatory privilege to avoid recruiting. That? What's that? So that's what I call predatory recruiting. Absolutely. Yeah, it can still happen when you're 18 years old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're right. Yeah, you, you know, there's nothing. Yeah, you may still be. Uh, most 18 year olds aren't super worldly. Yeah, you can be smart, but you probably don't know a whole lot about the world. You know, I don't think I did. <laughs> so, yeah. However much you think you know when you're 18, if there are any 18 year olds out there watching this now, just remember this moment when you're 30. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah I was a little right. naive. Yeah. yeah. I did know some things, but I had a lot of things I didn't know. <laughs> You can be highly intelligent at any age, but it takes time to accrue knowledge. So this is, brings us to one of our last topics, one of our latter topics. The people that Mashea brings up the concept, sort of a related concept, which is predatory recruiting. This is, this is something even worse than that. The cruelest of the cruel, we talk about the little fingers of the world, seeing this as a great opportunity. So all the chaos ladders coming out in force, people trying to work their way up in the world at the expense of others. Slavers look at refugees as an opportunity to acquire new merchandise. To us, these are human beings in need. But to slavers, this is one of the best opportunities there is. Business would be booming. And what does this have to do with Westeros, where slavery is forbidden? Well, it's not entirely forbidden, is it? First of all, I've never been convinced that the Targaryens and Valarians simply abandoned slavery the moment they got to Westeros when they're living on islands, right? Who's going to tell them not to? They just got to Westeros and were like, you know what? We're done with slavery. Really? I don't think so. I, they, they probably eased out of it at, at best, right? It may have been difficult. It may have taken some real haranguing and difficulty, some infighting within the family maybe. But the fact that it was on islands really sells this for me. It's like no one's going to be coming in and checking on them, telling them not to do that. What, the High Septon going to tell them not to do that? Why would they listen to him? <laughs> you know, the High Septon is... There's in some seven kingdoms where they can just everyone go get the Targaryens for going against our values. It's just nothing like that. I don't disagree with your point, but I, but my thought is that they probably didn't have a slave-based economy on the islands. Yeah, they probably you're right. Had, did have slave. We, I, I really wish I had thought of that on my own, but something Jamie distinguished last episode was the difference between a society that where slaves are exist versus a society that is 
economy based on slavery, you know? Good point. And yeah, very good point. I do remember reading one time that there is a much just historically, there's a strong correlation between available land and slavery. Mm. That, that you see spikes in slavery when there's new available land, which the Americas are kind of obvious uh. example. So on the island, we'd have limited land. So there's, I, I guess, less, the theory is maybe there's less need for slaves because there's less labor to be done. I, I don't know, but oh, that anyway. makes some sense. Yeah. And also student slavery can have pretty blurred lines when you work for extremely powerful people in a place you can't leave, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Craster's wives weren't literally his slaves, but if someone calls them his slaves, I'm not going to argue. Like, they're, by all intents and purposes, they're pretty much slaves. They have to do everything he says, and they can't leave. He can do whatever he wants with them. What's the difference? You know, it's a, it's a complex philosophical concept, but I've made the argument that there is not a lot of difference between your property and your liberty. Mm. If on an island you have a farm and you plant the seeds and sow the soil and irrigate the water and harvest them, and then someone comes up with a dragon and says, all right, give me all your potatoes. Is that much different than if they flew around all year long with the dragons saying, harvest these potatoes? You know, it's almost the same thing, you know, so. That's a good point. Yeah, so it's very easy to, to show how blurry this line is. And when you get into something like the Ironborn and their thralls, that's just like semantics. That's not even a blurred line. That's just, come on. The difference in thralls and slaves is like on how they're sold and how their children are yeah. treated. Like the actual person that's a thrall or a slave, there's not an ex- an experiential difference to them. Like the life is the same. So like it's only different from the perspective of the people who own them, which isn't really, to me, that's not much of a distinction. The person that's owned is... The one that has the same life, which whatever you call them there. And that's that's what matters more to me. It might even be more frustrating for the person that has enslaved you to claim that you're not a slave. It might be worse. Yeah, it's you like, know what I mean? like, like geez, man. can't even call. Like, you have all the power and you can't even say what this is. Like, come on. Yeah, yeah. you're a slaver and a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> Throw that on the pile of awful, yeah. <laughs> and there's a particular extra need for thralls in this era. Sean, you touched on it. I don't even know if you realized how... Perfect, your example of new land means newly need for slaves and how well that applies to this next example. Because the house whore, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, they just conquered the Riverlands in this era. During the Century of Blood, it wasn't because of the Century of Blood, I don't think. I I think it just happened at the same time. But there was a three-king run of house whore on the mainland. Harwin Hardhand, Halleck Whore, and Heron the Black, who built Heron Hall, right? They conquered the entire Riverlands and part of what's now the Crownlands. Talk about new land, Sean, right? They conquered all of that yeah. in a very short span and then went to work on Harrenhal, which we have lots of historical evidence and quotes, direct quotes of how many thralls and laborers died building Harrenhal. Where do these people come from? Eh? I think some of them might have been Century of Blood refugees from Essos. Like there's a lot of yeah, people running yeah. away and then the, and he's got his own ships. He's an ironborn. They could have been sending ships out. They don't have to be buying slaves from these brokers. They could be the brokers. They could send ships out, capture slaves, bring them back, force them to work on Harrenhal. Or I'm not trying to say that he installed a slave economy, so to use that distinction again, but to work on his big but project. But you're not, not saying Yeah, it. I'm not not saying that. You're right. It stands to reason. This isn't something we have direct evidence of. This is a whole population of thralls that instead of just serving on the isles, they had this huge mainland position, like the Iron Isles territory that they controlled would have increased by a factor I can't even fathom. More than 10 times. I mean, compare the size of the Iron Isles to the Riverland. I mean, it's 
vast. I mean, and it's not just the Riverlands. Like I said, it's part of the Crownlands. So like I said, I don't think they just installed thraldom all over the Riverlands in just a few generations. I don't think like the Riverlords started taking thralls, but they weren't stopping Heron from doing it. You know, I don't, they were just like, we've just been conquered. And again, thraldom's a religious thing too. So like, yeah, the Riverlords aren't just like starting to worship the drowned god here especially over such a short period of time. And again, who's going to say no? Is the High Septon going to go march up to Heron Hall and be like, stop this? You know, no, mm-hmm. you know, like, Heron the Black's not going to listen. <laughs> he doesn't even follow the faith of the Seven. <laughs> so all these unsecure regions, it'd be super easy for him to send out the Iron Fleet or whatever version of that existed then because, you know, it's, it's a smaller thing then. And just take slaves and take capture people and no one's going to say he can't do it. And just, yeah. Monster castle, monster need, awful guy, evidence of la- huge amounts of laborers. What an awful thing, right? You flee the, the east to escape this and you end up doing the same things the Valyrians would have you do, sending you down into the mines, the quarries for some ultra-rich person to have a fancy place to live. Same old Westeros, yeah. Essos, yeah. And so the one thing that kind of aligns on the timeline here really well is after all that, Heron the Black famously finished his castle right when Aegon begins his conquest. And then, as we said at the beginning, the conquest began almost right at the end of the Century of Blood. And here, this quote reminds us of that. As for Aegon Targaryen, shortly after his role in defeating Volantis, it is written that he lost all interest in the affairs of the East, believing Volantis rule at an end, he flew back to Dragonstone. And now, no longer distracted by the wars of Vessos, he turned his gaze west. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty accurate, right? He believed Volantis was defeated and rule was at an end. Yeah, I mean, they've never gotten close to that level of power they showed in the aftermath. Looking at what it looks like now, when Tyrion is walking through the city with Jorah, there's huge swaths of the, of the town are depopulated and unused, unkempt, just broken fountains, just weeds growing through the the flagstones, people just don't live in certain parts of town. It's just the popu- it's depopulation, right? And he also notices the huge disparity that we referred to last time on slaves versus freeborn people and how the slaves just massively outnumber the citizens. But sticking with Aegon a little more, here's another quote, but this one's from Fire and Blood, and it backs up this last quote, gives it maybe additional weight to it. Yet even so, for the best part of 100 years after the doom of Valyria, the rightly named Century of Blood, House Targaryen looked east, not west, and took little interest in the affairs of Westeros. So before we asked ourselves this question, and we had good answers. We don't necessarily need more answers on the question of why didn't House Targaryen conquer Westeros before Aegon? But this is another reason, and that we didn't one that we didn't mention before. The Century of Blood was raging. It caused huge distractions. The Targaryens on Dragonstone obviously were involved somehow. Some of the roles were undocumented. Aegon's role was at least partially documented. They would have definitely been curious to see how things shape up, if not more than curious. You know, curious might be underselling that. Yeah, it makes sense that they still would have had ties to the different powers that be, the economies, even the cultures, you know, and it it might have taken a couple generations for them to become fully disconnected. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, well point, well point. And it's interesting too how much of this is still the state of affairs now. Like Valeria or Valantis, as we said, it's still pretty much in this relative state it was in after their failure during the Century of Blood. Things haven't changed a whole lot since then. A lot of these other places are similar. The Disputed Lands, like it's called the Disputed Lands. It doesn't have a proper name. That's how messed up it is. It's still called that. Sellsword companies still emerge from and fight over the Disputed Lands. But also... 
other areas that probably were well controlled by the Valyrians. Like one thing we don't hear a lot about of during the Valyrians is piracy. I imagine they it's probably pretty hard to be a pirate in the Valyrian era. I mean, most dragon lords aren't going to bother themselves with hunting down pirates. But if they ever did, every once in a while, if a Valyrian dragon lord turned their attention to hunting pirates, well, we've seen how vulnerable ships are <laughs> to dragons. And most things are vulnerable to dragons. So I would imagine the pirates in the Valyrian era would have been smaller scale. Because the big, if you, if you rise to a certain level of prominence, that's when you become a target. And it wouldn't be that hard for them to get you, I think, if they wanted to. Point being, you have, with the collapse of Valyria, not only do you have sellsword companies and these cycles of violence that have still not ended, well, you have cell sail fleets that are still active that the Ironborn were a part of. So we know that this is all sort of part of that pastiche of raiding and piracy and enslaving that happens in this region that is most known for it. Quote. Most are based in the Stepstones, the isles that dot the narrow sea between the Broken Arm and the eastern coast. These pirate fleets make any journey through the Stepstones treacherous. It is said that the swan ships of the Summer Isles sometimes avoid the Stepstones entirely, risking the deep sea rather than chancing an attack by corsairs. Others with less skill at sea and vessels less fit for the deep ocean have no choice. These pirate dens, when they grow too volatile and numerous, are sometimes swept clean by the fleets of the Archons of Tyrosh or the Triarchs of Volantis or even the Sea Lords of Bravos. But they always manage to return. That'll be something that we talk about separately sometime. That'll be a, a solid topic for us to take on the, the concept of piracy and, and how these things recur because of the this conditions rather than just like people being evil and like, yeah, let's go be pirates. You know, there is an element of that, but it's also a lot of people are pirates because they don't have another available way to make a living. Sometimes they're forced into joining these pirate crews, just like we talked about the press gangs that force you to join the regular military or the British military or whichever, or conscription to a military. You can be conscripted into a pirate fleet too. A lot of times there's a fine line between a military ship and a pirate ship. You know, True. a lot of times the powers that be will not want to declare war, but will want to disrupt the commerce of their opponents. So they'll say, you know what, we're not going to prosecute pirates. And even sometimes it's like officially, there's a word for a letter, letter of, of mark. Yeah. Letter of mark. Yeah. Like you're, you're officially allowed to go attack other ships on the sea. Privateer versus you know, pirate, which is a very yeah. just a yeah, loose distinction. Kind of like you said, it's kind of semantic difference between thrall and slave, you know. Yes. That's a great example. Yeah. And that is, brings us to another example that's a lot closer to the main story, which is Salador San. Salador San is Lysine, and his ancestors were pirates. He's a pirate, but he turned official for Stannis. And then when he wasn't getting paid, he went right back to it. So he became official and was useful in a military capacity because his ships were strong. He's a good sailor. He knows the region. He's capable. Maybe not super trustworthy, but probably more trustworthy than most pirates, given that he stayed as long as he did without being paid. But he comes from a long line of this. There was Sathos San and other Sans that came before him. So most likely, they were some sort of powerful Lysine noble family that operated trading fleets or something. And then when the Century of Blood happened, they started doing this instead or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can really easily see it. I mean, these, these guys have been 
The Sons have been powerful in the Stepstones for centuries. I have a feeling that either that started during the Century of Blood or pivoted during the Century of Blood from whatever they were before that. So, yeah. <laughs> this gets lost in the shuffle sometimes because Solidar San in the show is black, but in the, in the books he's Lysine, which is they look like Valyrians. <laughs> so it's a little different. Hmm. Yeah. And of course, there's other things we've, we've mentioned, like the, the Valentine fleets tried to go to Valyria and failed, and then kind of like Emperor Orion. And then later in our Lost Valyrian Steel episode with Tommy Pappas, we talked about attempts for other nations to go there, and, and Volantis was happy to help, and how maybe they were happy to help because they saw it as an opportunity to scam these fleets or to, to rip them off because they knew they were going to die. And be like, hey, you guys are going to die. We're going to steal all your stuff. And it's like, yep, they vanished into Valyria. <laughs> so check out that episode for more, more talk about this, this angle of Volantis's dirtiness here. I wanted to talk a little bit about how well this all compares to The Long Night as a massive event that really changed things, even though they're really far apart. They're not similar in terms of like where they happen, but in terms of being a semi-global event, something that uh, causes a lot of desperation and renewal and rethinking of how society even works. In The Long Night, there was a common enemy. Here, the common enemy is mankind. Right, But even after the others were defeated, after winter was gone, we kind of assume things went back to the Game of Thrones, right? People just started infighting again, especially the, the people who have that attitude in the first place. And that's what this is, right? This is the Game of Thrones played out after the throne <laughs> vanishes all of a sudden and all the people that could claim it are gone. And even the land where the throne is contained was gone. Cultural resets involve things being forgotten or lost forever. Almost everything has to be rebuilt. Power structures, trade, borders, even language in some cases. In a lot of ways, like the, the impetus for the destruction is different. The way it plays out is different. But the basic things that are being fought over, the basic dangers facing humanity, the day-to-day the -day suffering and struggle for a lot of people would be very similar, very, very common, even though we're talking about something like 7,000 years apart. How does this concept, this parallel strike you, Sean? I was thinking it uh, going down rabbit holes on Wikipedia or whatever, leading up to this reading about volcanoes. It was interesting that they distinguish natural disasters from famines, mm. which are like often more likely, at least partly human caused. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like wars and famines are a little different than like volcanoes and earthquakes. And so the long night maybe was at least partly caused by humans or yeah, humanoid entities, but maybe it was some sort of natural event. But they both have like, these repercussions that are devastating to people. One minor side note, by the way, that uh, floods are so much worse than volcanoes or earthquakes. Flo there are mm. multiple times floods have killed millions of people, Oof. where volcanoes kill like a few dozen thousand, you know, but like multiple times floods have killed hundreds of thousands of people. But that pales in comparison to famine. Hundreds of millions of people, multiple times, mm. have died to famines. Oof. And it's like the, the ability for people to mismanage themselves is way more dangerous than catastrophic events that can happen to us, mm. you know? Yeah, and I guess it's worse when those two things are combined, which is what we're dealing with here. Yes, you have the, which both of these might be. Yeah. The natural <laughs> disaster and the horrible management. Because, yeah, I mean, like, what's worse than right after a natural disaster that devastates, like, a whole continent or areas of a whole continent, everyone just starts fighting? It's the worst thing yeah, you could possibly yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, we suck. <laughs> Even fictional <Yeah>. us. <laughs> <laughs>
It is one good thing about modern times. There is much more of a rally to support when there's a natural disaster nowadays rather than a grab for powers. And we do have a better idea of when it's happening, too. Technology. Yes, we are better able to predict and react. You know? Yeah, you're right. I, I was just referring to knowing that it happened. You're right. I, I wasn't even thinking of predicting, but you're totally right. That's another good, like with the volcanoes, like we have a much better idea of when a volcano yeah. might go off. We still don't know for sure, but we have huge tools that give us way more ability to notice that. Okay, so what we'll do, we have a little bit of time. I've got a little bit of stuff on volcanoes. So we'll save Tonga for another time. This is one I was really been thinking about a lot. And the reason I want to save Tonga is because they're still studying it. And we have another I've got I have and we have another opportunity for it. When Hard Home comes around, we'll talk about Tonga because that'll be more time, more real-world time will have passed and we'll be able to discuss it. But just three quick facts about it, just to get you just to tease the information. It appears to be a VIE5. VIE is the volcanic explosivity index, which is Almost exactly like the Richter scale. Every little point higher is, is, is dramatically bigger. The shock waves from Tonga went around the globe. This thing we can measure now that we couldn't measure from past volcanoes. They went around the globe three times. They circled the globe three times they were measured circling. A shout out to Virginie, who is a local of Tonga and listener of the show and a, a member of the Song of Ice Power community. We had a Twitter thread with her that she tagged us in on March 9th of 2022. So if you want to look at that, that's very informative. But We'll have more to say on that later. Sean, what did you have to say? I just, there were a couple other volcanic eruptions I wanted to give at least a brief little note to. Okay, go for it. One was the one that I already brought up, the the one in Colombia. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's another thing about that one I need to talk about. But just for perspective, I wanted to point out Mount Vesuvius mm-hmm. was a VEI-5. Okay. Which, by the way, that VEI, that Richter scale, it's not way bigger. It's literally, specifically, 10 times bigger. <laughs> so it's not like when you think, it's not like a scale of 1 to 10. It's a scale of 1 to a billion. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, you know, like a 5 on the scale is like a million. A 7 on the scale is 100 million. A 3 on the scale is 100 or something. You just see what I mean? Yeah, it's like I've got some way, of that. way bigger. I've got some of that written down. Let's 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 fill people in on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it and of course since all since volcanoes often come with earthquakes or earthquake come with volcanoes, there's also a Richter scale measurement and a VEI measurement. So according to NPS.gov, which is the National Park Services, and they range from zero to eight, and it's mostly referring to how much magma and gas and how high it goes, like how much total ex- stuff comes out, how much mass comes out, and how high it goes. So there's the zero is a Hawaiian, which is where it's just flowing. A one is a Hawaiian slash Strombolian, which sounds like food because Stromboli is, you know, anyway. That sounds good. That sounds good, yeah. It's like pineapples <laughs> and, yeah, cheese. And <laughs> Two is a Strombolian slash Vulcanian. Now, Vulcan, now that sounds like, yeah, Vulcan, Volcano, that's right on. A three is a Vulcanian slash Subplinian. Four is a Subplinian. A five is a Plinian. A six is a Plinian slash Ultraplinian. And a seven or eight is an Ultraplinian. And an eight is like over 200 cubic miles of magma, which is a thousand cubic kilometers of, of stuff coming out, which is whoa. The smallest ones are shield yeah. volcanoes, then, then going up the scale at cinder cones, then composite volcanoes, then calderas, and then super volcanoes. The biggest one ever that we know of was Parana Atendeca, which is 130 million years ago. This is the Paraguay, Uruguay area. But it's so long ago that the continents weren't where they are now. <laughs> so it's also got to keep in mind that South America wasn't where it was then. That was over 8,000 cubic miles of stuff ejected by that volcano. Like, that's unfathomable. And the biggest within yeah. 1 million years was a super volcano in Indonesia called the Lake Toba Caldero, Caldera, which is the largest volcanic lake in the world. 62 miles long, 100 kilometers long, 30 kilometers wide. 
That's a huge ass lake. Yeah. Yeah, there was one in, uh, well, again, I was going to say for perspective, Pompeii, you know, Mount yeah. Vesuvius, that's like a famous one, if you will. That was a VEI-5, yeah. and it killed at least 10,000 people. And by the way, that volcano had gone off a bunch of times. That's That mm. that volcano has erupted like that. Now, some of them were like, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago before humanity had any awareness. Yeah. But, um, Mount St. Helens was a five um, as well. I mean, the post, the follow-up, er, Mount St. Helens had follow-up eruptions, though those were like ones and twos. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the big one was a five. Yeah, but Mount Tambora, I believe that's the biggest one in recorded human history. It was a seven, a VE I-7. And it was in the early 1800s in Indonesia. And it killed, it's hard to measure, but they think around 100,000 people. Oof. And it, part of why it's hard to imagine, they, they're pretty sure like 10,000 people were killed like right in immediate vicinity. Mm-hmm. But the shock waves and the tidal waves, it like swept out. And then the follow-up starvation and famine because of all the yeah. animals mm. and farms that were destroyed and everything, it, it comes out to arguably 100,000. Another interesting thing about that was that it sent... I was thinking when you're talking about like the volume and mass sent out by the volcanoes similar to that one in Columbia, not just what's coming out of the volcanoes, but the sort of results of that. Like in that mm. one, it like, I think it's a word, a Larens or Lamars or something. It was, it's like yeah. the Lahars, that's it. Yeah. The mudslide basically that, that was caused by. And that one in Columbia, there was like this massive mudslide that came and then another one and then another one. I mean, I just can't <sighs> imagine a horror of the people living through that. Me uh, but, uh, but the Mount Tambora created rafts of trees and debris that were like pushed into the ocean mm. that a thousand miles away, rafts of debris three miles wide were floating through the ocean. Wow. Like just the entire sea around the island was just covered with trees Jeez. and debris from the volcano. Never mind the volcano, the, the, the lava or the ash or anything, just the, the surface of the island. It was just swept to the sea and spread out for thousands of miles. Jeez. It was also called the year without summer because it had this worldwide ash in the sky, like art in that Real year. Real long night. They had mm. a, yeah, there was a different tint to how painters made the sky wow. because it had a different color in the earth for that next year. It Jeez. lowered the temperature of earth about a degree. So anyway, yeah, that was like a, that might be a little closer to the doom as far as like the worldwide impact, because yeah. some of the other big volcanoes in human history either didn't kill as many people or didn't affect the whole world or they were before humans were around. But even now, we're just some relatively remote island. Imagine if that had happened in Rome or yeah. London or something. It's wild yeah. to imagine, yeah. The ancient volcano that made Crater Lake in Oregon that we referred to last time or maybe the time before was a seven. So that's really big. The most recent VEI-8 in the world was 28,500 years ago. It was the New Zealand's Taupo volcano, and it covered most of New Zealand. It changed river flow and lakes overflowed. It was 280 cubic miles in deposits, so most of New Zealand was covered. Mount Tarawera, this is what I mentioned before. This is the one I, I really wanted to talk about because it's erupted twice, and it's a, a possible explanation for those long winters that we discussed several episodes ago when we were discussing natural impacts on possible real-world long nights. The one in 1315 was 11 different four-level VEI eruptions. And there was a natural wonder there that's formed called the Pink and White Terraces. Some people called it the Eighth World Wonder. There's only paintings of it because in 1886, there was another eruption there and it killed 153 people, most deadly in New Zealand history. It says that survivors 
of this volcano became refugees in their own country for generations. Because that's how much that's how devastating it was. Interestingly, these eighth world, this eighth world wonder, the the pink and white terraces, these are two separate things. There's the pink terraces and the white terraces. And they're they're silica center powered by geothermal vents. They're really beautiful. They're similar to Mammoth Springs in Yosemite, or Yellowstone rather, Perma de Saturnia in Italy, or Pamukkale in Turkey, or Hierva de El Agua in Mexico, or Badab Isert in Iran. Seriously, folks, look at pictures of these. Look at Mammoth Springs, look at Terme de Saturnia, look at Pamukkale, look at Hierva de El Agua. <laughs> I've never heard I can't you pronounce ma- these properly. I've, I've never heard you mangle more words in a row. I know. I don't know what these, I don't know how to say any of these things. So just look up pink and white terraces and it'll lead you to these other things. They're super amazing. But the reason I wanted to bring this up too is because there's like a Danish dreamer angle to some of this. Before the 1886 eruption, 11 days before the eruption, okay? Now remember the doom, the Danish had the dream like 11 or 12 years before the doom. So this probably isn't an influence, but it might be. There's just too many similar things like this out in the world, but it is at least similar. I'm not saying it's an influence, but it's definitely a parallel. A phantom waka appeared on the lake 11 days before the eruption. What's a waka? A waka is a war canoe of the Maori people. This is a Maori territory, right? And it was traditional for a waka to, for a, Semi, a funeral canoe to have the the warrior strapped up, like facing up like this. They'd be, sta- they'd be standing up even in death. Well, a, a large number of tourists and guides reported seeing a, a, a ghost waka like appear out of the lake and people said it was a portent of doom. And there's like letters people wrote at the time saying they saw this, like a bunch of different people saying they saw this. One guess is that it was like a buried canoe that was like resurfaced. It was, it was, had settled at the bottom of the lake and came back up or something like that. But the religious portent interpretation is hard to get away from because it's so neat. People said it was a portent of doom and 11 days later, the volcano went out. And it's, that makes it even more memorable because it's like, whoa, there's so many like individuals that attested to this really happening. Wow. Okay. Well, that makes it really interesting apart from the awfulness I wonder if there was some well. sort of explanation behind it, if there was some sort of release of gases or sulfur or something into the lake. And it, yeah. especially if you're like observing this culture already, if it has a similar shape, you're going to impose that onto it. And yeah, th- th- maybe there's some mix of misinterpretation, but actual real sign that was being missed, you know? Yeah. And good news, the pink and white terraces may not have been destroyed. There is now some evidence that maybe they're just buried and can be restored. Mm-hmm. So that would be nice because the, the, the paintings are beautiful and it would be really good for, for the local tourism there. It would give some, bring some money to that area, which is in need of that, I think. Maybe, maybe ask them, but not me though, if, if that's really what they want. <laughs> I don't know. All right, well, let's wrap it up. We've got a super chat from Here Be Dragon. It says, listening while mopping. Cheers, y'all. I hope y'all caught Sean last week on Here Be Dragons. It was a lot of fun. Shay and I were, were listening. And here's hoping that's, that he's not mopping anymore. <laughs> yeah, I hope you're done by now. That would yeah. be a lot of mopping. <laughs> <laughs> he mopped the floor with us. Yeah, it was fun listening to Sean do a Here Be Dragons. I know that nerd. They talked about all sorts of interesting things and some not so interesting things like Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not at all. Not so interesting to you. Uh, Gerald Garcia says, when Krakatoa erupted in the 530s, it caused the sun to dim for a year. It is blamed for the Justinian plague, famines that depopulated Western Europe, the fall of the Maya and the Arab conquests. That is a lot for one volcano, but I totally believe it. Maybe we'll have to look into a little more into Krakatoa. I don't think we mentioned it very much other than in passing. So 
Good call there, Gerald Garcia. That's a good name. And let's see. We also have reviewing our mentioned episodes. We mentioned the Doom of Valyria, of course. Check that out. It's only a 40-minute episode if you haven't already. It gets deep into the event in particular. Gagasso's episode, of course, The City of Blood Magic. Check that out. And I mentioned our Lost Valyrian Steel episode with Tommy Pappas. The trivia question. Yes, yes, yes. Let's have the answer. Again, the question was, what alternate names did George refer to the Century of Blood as before settling on the name Century of Blood? The answer is, I remember two answers. They are the bleeding years or the years of blood. I did see one person in the chat get that. Really? Someone got it? Someone nice. got it. Um, assuming they didn't look it up at the uh, you know early on. I don't know how, if they did. Good job for them yeah. for finding it quickly. So there's other topics we will expand on besides the Dothraki and the Sarnori and the individual free cities and how it impacted them. For example... There's a H.P. Lovecraft story called The Doom That Came to Sarnath. And Sarnath is a city in the Sarnori Kingdom because George was heavily influenced by H.P. Lovecraft, especially that story. Mm. So we'll talk about that sometime. That's a really good one. And it even involves, it even includes a place called Ib. So the influence is even more straightforward. And Sean's brought a cat. cat. A wiggly cat. He lost a cat. Sean lost the cat. We saw the cat, though. Thanks, everyone who came and watched live. Thanks for the questions, for the super chats, for the great times, for the community, for the shared love of this great fandom. Thanks to Nina for her notes. There were some really good ones today, as usual. Thanks to our patrons for the financial support. We announced that we'd be making large changes to our Patreon, and that's happening, but it's happening a little bit at a time rather than all at once, which is how I originally planned it. But this is working out well, too. Rather, I think small changes... Is, is a better way to do it. I probably shouldn't have pr- proceeded the uh, the original way in the first place, but we're, we've got it under control now. It's, it's going nicely. We're adding a lot more bonus episodes, changing a few things about how it works, trying to simplify a few things and adapting with the times, right? These sites change, the fandom changes, our expectations for the future changes. So yeah, we'll roll with that. And y'all hopefully will stick with us. We'll continue to have lots of fun together every week almost and in between as well. Thanks as well to Joey, Jesse, and Kevin for the music, Michael for the video intro and the maps. Thanks to our mods for managing things on Facebook, Discord, and everywhere else y'all interact with us. You can always reach out to us on westroshistory at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter or any of those other places. We'll see you next time for more Valar Rereadus. <laughs>